guys, and welcome back to another edition of the Wrestling Stoop with the legend himself, Bob Roop. And of course, I am your co-host, Ray Russell, always along for the ride here. And this week, quite a unique episode of Regional Wrestling as we're going to tackle, well, a couple of well-known stories, or, or at least one very well-known story, and another one that's been floating around for the past couple decades as well. Now, at the top of the show, Bob's going to break down his relationship with the unpredictable Dickie Slater. Bob going to talk about his time around Dick Slater throughout the 1970s that led to their infamous bar fight, if you want to call it that, of 1979. This week, we're going to break down the truths and the fiction that's been put out there by people that weren't even there to see it. Then from there, Bob going to go back to that fateful night, February 20th, 1975, to the plane crash that ended the life of the legendary heel, Bobby Shane. Of course, along in that plane ride, several injuries suffered by the likes of the pilot, Buddy Colt, as well as Gary Hart, the manager extraordinaire, and Austin Idol. Well, he was pre-Idol then. But all four men part of that plane crash, and Bob has a very interesting perspective of the story. He wasn't part of the crash itself, but he did show up shortly after the crash to help out at the bay. Of course, by all accounts, even in Gary Hart's book, Bob Roop's girlfriend, the first to show up on the scene after the plane crash. And spoiler alert, guys, because Bob's version of the story, a little bit different than what you see in Gary Hart's book. So again, as I said, a very unique perspective of that tragedy that took place back in 1975. And we're going to get into all of that and likely more in just a minute. But first, just a reminder that you guys can listen to the Wrestling Stoop with Bob Roop, as well as sister shows like the Wrestling Memory Grenade, currently covering the 1988 in the WWF Project, as well as the Regional Wrestling Podcast, where we talk the territories, currently covering three projects over there, including 1985 Memphis, 1986 in the UWF, and 1981 in Georgia Championship Wrestling. And you can also listen to the upcoming brand new podcast coming to the brand, talking about the Pro Wrestling Academy podcast, with the professor of Pearl Resu himself, Mr. Dan Janetti. So good to have Dan aboard here on the brand as he takes us back in time and talks about the history of Japanese professional wrestling. Going to be a fun ride there with Dan Janetti, guys. And you can listen to all of those shows and more, all part of the WrestleCopia Podcast Network located over at WrestleCopia.com. That's WrestleCopia.com and anywhere your podcast streaming needs are met, from Apple to Spotify, Pocket Cast, and beyond. And be sure to follow me on social media for all the latest goings on here at the WrestleCopia Podcast Network. And you can follow me on X, formerly Twitter, at Wrestling Grenade. That's at R-A-S-S-L-I-N Grenade. Also, follow and like me, Facebook.com slash Wrestling Grenade. Over 9,000 followers and counting right now over there on Facebook. And hey, while you're at it, why not subscribe to my YouTube channel, guys? YouTube.com slash Wrestling Grenade. And of course, you guys can friend Bob over at Facebook.com slash poor Bob Roop. Bob, always looking forward to hearing from new friends. And hey, while I got you here, we would be very grateful, Bob and I, if you guys could take the time, if you're listening on Apple or any of the other podcast apps out there that offer a rating system, if you can go in there and leave us that five-star rating and, and maybe leave a sentence or two explaining why you like the show here. Again, if you truly enjoy this show or any of the shows here on the WrestleCopia brand, please do us a solid. Stop over to your podcast app and leave us that five-star rating. It really goes a long way in helping build the brand, but also it helps fix some of the issues with some of the haters out there trying to skew the ratings. So again, we would greatly appreciate a five-star rating with leave a sentence or two, add a little context as to why you like the shows here. As we continue on, 
Now would also be a tremendous time to become a WrestleCopia patron. You can find us over there at patreon.com slash WrestleCopia. That address again, patreon.com slash WrestleCopia. Talking about that $5 all-access tier gets you so many gifts for just 5 bucks, including all of my insanely detailed show notes for the Regional Wrestling Podcast, the Monday Warfare Podcast, and the Wrestling Memory Grenade Show as well. Plus, you'll get early access to many of the podcasts here on WrestleCopia, where you can listen days and many times as much as a week earlier than the rest of the listeners. Then from there, it's remastered versions of the earliest episodes of The Grenade Show covering the 1989 NWA project. It includes enhanced sound quality, plus new content and conversation never heard before. But that's still not all. You also get digital downloads for your viewing and reading pleasure, and of course, the Patreon-exclusive Watch Along series, covering many past WWF and WCW events. And if all of that wasn't enough, there's also random bonus video drops. Never know when I'm going to drop a new video over there. And video casts on the way, as you guys can watch us and the video we're watching at the same time, see our reactions and go back in time and relive great events from the United States to Japan and beyond. It's going to be a fun time there on the WrestleCopia video cast. And you guys get all of that for the low, low price of just $5. No subscription, cancel any time, just give it a try for a month. I think you'll like the content that we offer, and every penny of it goes right back here into paying the bills to keep the WrestleCopia podcast network and all of the great shows here up and running for the months and the years to come. And now it's time to welcome him back to the program here this week. The man you all came to listen to. Some great stories ahead, so let's get into it. Here he is, Mr. Bob Roop. Bob, welcome back to the Wrestling Stoop. Well, thank you, Ray. Good to talk to you again. Sitting here and nice and toasty inside. It's uh, it's Arctic weather again outside. It's supposed to have yeah. icy rain tonight. But I don't know if the roads are going to be clear for me to go to work tomorrow, but uh, we'll find out. But it, like I say, it's nice and toasty right here. So. I'm in a good mood to talk to you. Well, I kind of hope you don't go to work tomorrow, because if you have time, maybe we'll squeeze in another episode. <laughs> that'd be great. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, that'd be a, a good time. But um, yeah, I just, I've had quite a quite a week myself last week. We had a couple of snow days. Well, one was a cold weather day. It was like minus 15. The other day, it was a snow day. And in between, uh, my kids went back to school for one day, and my two daughters come home within a day and a half's time. They they have some sort of a, a stomach bug, a virus that went through the school 150 kids and, and staff missed the following day of school. Oh so God. it was it was like a major thing. I'm like, well, if 150 people got something in one day's time, man, it's going to hit the rest of my kids. But luckily, <laughs> only one of my only one of my other kids thus far, knock on wood, crossing my fingers, hoping uh, that's where it ends. My wife, uh, the OCD captain of the world, she's already a hell of a cleaner, but she's really like super cleaned the last week here in the house. So hopefully everything's nice and, and clean and nobody gets sick here moving forward. So you didn't have to put the two sick girls in a closet or anything, did no, you? No, luckily they share their own room, so oh, it, it worked out. It worked out well. Yeah, the older one, uh, she she got over it a little quicker than the younger one, but they're they're both doing great now. This <laughs> is good to see them back That's up good. over the weekend, and uh, yeah, That's back good. to their old eating habits and running around. So yeah, everything's good here. Uh, but everybody's not here for me. They're here to hear stories from you, uh, Mr. Bob Roop, and uh, we've got a couple of stories here this week. We we talked about at the end of last episode that we're going to touch on, obviously, in a little bit, guys. We're going to get to that fateful night, February the 20th, 1975, the plane crash from Miami to Tampa. But first, Bob, I also alluded to another story I wanted to get into you with you here today on the program, 
And uh, I told you that it involved Dick Slater. Now, I know you've talked about this before, at least with Barry Rose, if not other places as well. But I wanted to get it here in documentation on the Bob Roop show, The Wrestling Stoop. And uh, the story is, and this is all I know, and I'll let you, I'll set the stage and then you, you can take it from there. On Facebook, from time to time, I get a, a casual, ignorant fan who just randomly out of the, out of the blue, because I co-host this show with you, they like to, uh, I don't know, try to pick a fight. I don't know the best word to use here, but they randomly point out this specific time that they heard a story that you got into a fight with Dick Slater in a bar. I know that much is accurate that you guys had some issues there. So I'm going to let you tell it your way, but the story goes that you guys got into a fight in a bar at some point in time. I'm guessing somewhere around the end of the 1970s, but I'll let you take it away from here and, and we'll try to pinpoint the truths. All I can do is tell it like I remember it. And uh, there were some witnesses. In fact, one of them was holding me that are still alive. But let's go back. Let me delineate my, my relationship with Dick Slater. Sure. When Slater was first breaking in, he was brought. Uh, he was one of the guys. Ron Fuller, ironically, Ron Fuller was another one. I'm trying to think. Mike Graham was also there, although Mike had done that numerous times. I'm trying to. Th and oh, Paul Orndorff. So uh, what I was doing with those guys was I was teaching them how to defend themselves against somebody attacking them. I wasn't teaching them how to, you know, go on the attack themselves, but just how to defend themselves from having somebody like take them down. Because uh, that would be a nightmare. I mean, if you can stay on your feet and, and, you know, while somebody's trying to attack you, you can punch them or, you know, bite them, whatever you need to do, stick your finger in their eye or whatever you need to do to get them off you. But if you get taken down, uh, especially in the ring, for example, what if that happens during a match and some guy takes you down and you can't get away and it takes the cops two or three minutes to get there? you're destroyed in that town as far as having credibility. So anyway, Slater was one of the, one of the trainees for that. I don't remember anything about, uh, of any moment. I mean, nobody got mad. Nobody was going to, you know, bristled up and wanted to fight or anything. And I mean, I wasn't, I didn't abuse the guys. I would take them down and, and, but I would also, you know, I would show them why I took them and how I took them down and how to defend it. Uh, he's gone now. I shouldn't say it, but Billy Robinson had to reverse uh, psychology. You know, he, oh, yeah. his, his feeling was that you had to suffer. If you were going to break in, uh, you had to suffer. And actually to be fair, so did hero Matsuda. Now I don't remember Matsuda ever slapping anybody, but he, he did break an ankle or two. Uh, we talked about that on a, on a earlier, uh, issue about he would do it to find out guys could defend themselves. But um, he didn't humiliate people. I, I had an impression that some of Billy Robinson's stuff was intended for that kind of a, a reaction. But anyway, with the guys I worked out with, I never did that. I never talked down to them. These guys are going to be my colleagues, I assume. You know, they're breaking in. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I don't, why do I want to alienate them before we ever even start? It just wasn't my MO. And amateur wrestlers, you don't do that anyway. If you're, you might, uh, maybe hookers do. and. And I can see why a hook, a hook fighter or a mixed martial artist or someone like that, I can see why they would do that. They see the psychology involved. If you intimidate the other guy by talking down to him, giving the impression you're not afraid of him, that you think he's inferior to you, I see that psychology. But amateur wrestling is completely different from that. You don't ever do any of that trash talking before or after. I've never heard it ever. 
in amateur wrestling because you go out there, it's not what you say, it's what you do on the mat. That's what talks. And, and you know, if you get that done, then you don't have to say anything. If you can't get it done, what do you got to say? You don't have anything to say. You couldn't get it done. So anyway, um, the, the workouts were fine. There was no reason for anybody to have a beef because of that. Later on with Slater, our paths crossed here and there. I stayed in his apartment one time with, with his girlfriend. He was gone somewhere for a week or so, and I kept an eye on his girlfriend. I mean, in terms of just making sure she, if she needed a ride to get some groceries or something. And then, uh, well, in Knoxville, Bobby Orton came to me while I was booking for Ron Fuller uh, in Knoxville. Bobby Orton came and said that Slater wanted to come in. Well, I knew Slater involved. It was a decent, it was a good talent. So I agreed to it. And then uh, he was supposed to start, let's say he was supposed to start a week from Monday. Uh, I got a call that he had been in a nightclub, I believe in Atlanta, with uh, Wahoo McDaniel. And Wahoo, for some reason, pulled out a pistol and was slashing it around. And in the process, it went off and shot Slater through the knee. So he's got, you know, he's got a bullet wound in his uh, upper knee or one through the knee itself, like the, the into the joint, or he would have been crippled for, you know, he, he'd been out for a long time. But right. he had a gunshot. He had a gunshot wound in his leg. So obviously he's not going to be starting a week from now. So I sent somebody, I don't remember who it was, I sent somebody to Atlanta to get him, put him in a car and bring him, drive him back to Knoxville. He, no, he didn't have any place there to stay. He stayed on my couch. He, he was on my couch uh, in my living room. My girlfriend, I hadn't, we hadn't married yet, uh, Molly, took care of him, you know, he, when he couldn't get up or, you know, she would bring him food out where he was sitting. And so took care of him for oh, a couple of weeks. During that time, uh, he wasn't making any money. He asked me for a loan. He needed to pay the rent on his girlfriend's apartment in Tampa. So I loaned him 1500 bucks. I also negotiated with Ron Fuller uh, before he ever got there. I asked, told Fuller I wanted to offer him 800 bucks a week, and Fuller agreed to that. But when Slater got hurt, the day that he got there was the day he was supposed to start. But he couldn't start because he was, you know, he had the he had the bad the the bullet wound. Right. So so I asked Fuller to start paying him on that date, and he didn't want to do it. You know, and if he's not working, Bob. I said I know, but if you pay him, he'll be ready in a couple of weeks. If you may, if you pay him, uh, you know you're going to have a guy that'll be loyal to you by you doing the right thing. I kind of forced Fuller to do it. Uh, I made it clear that I mean I could say you better do it or I'll quit or anything like that. But we were drawing a lot of money. Uh, business was good. And Fuller, could start, he couldn't say, well, you know, Bob, business is bad. I don't have it. But he couldn't say any of that because, you know, I think the night before, one night before in Knoxville, it had been like 28000 bucks or something like that. So he couldn't, he couldn't use poverty as an excuse. And so he went ahead and did it. So Slater came in there and was laying on the couch in my living room. And it was a fold-out bed type couch. And you know, waited on by my girlfriend, and I wasn't there for some reason. I can't remember where I, where I, I think I was, might have gone to Japan, and then he was also getting 800 bucks a week. Okay, then he starts working, everything's going good. Then we do the opposition, and before we, before we actually started, had actually walked out, Slater and I went to Tampa, and I had set up um, a meeting with a union rep down there from the, for the 
Siemens International Union, uh, SIU, which is my college, Southern Illinois University, that was my college letter. So I thought that SIU, the Siemens International Union, was kind of uh, cool, you know, to have that kind of connection. But so I talked to a guy up from the union, and uh, Schlater was there uh, at the meeting. Oh, he was nervous, too. I could tell. We were in Tampa. You know, I mean, we were sure. five miles. We were five miles from the wrestling office. I mean, I don't know what he expected. What, Eddie Graham to walk in or something? But he was nervous as hell about being, oh, maybe caught, oh, talking to a union. Oh, my God. He'd be blackballed for life. Uh, just so such a cowardly attitude. I mean, all the guys had it. It wasn't just Slater. Well, anyway, uh, the union guy was very uh, accommodating. He said, yeah. He said, Knoxville has got a river, the Tennessee, whatever, I can't think of the name of it, goes right through. Uh, in fact, it runs pretty close to the football stadium and uh, uh, the, the arena. He said, yeah, we, you guys are in a union. He said, we could have a strike of people who, uh, you know, are working in the, in the buildings, in the, the wrestling, where you have the wrestling. We could have a strike because it's located near water. Uh, we can have, a, you know, we can have a lot of different people that affect your business to go on strike to support you in an action against your employer, uh, against Ron Fuller. So, you know, that was looking good. Well, immediately after we leave the meeting, apparently, now I've never ever heard this, but it had to happen this way. Apparently, Slater, I went my way. Slater went over to the wrestling office, uh, the snake pit over there on Albany Street, and told Eddie Graham what we were doing. Because when I got back to Knoxville the next day, Ron Fuller called me to his house and he knew what I was doing. He said, "Yeah, I hear you guys. You guys are going opposition to me, and or you're." He didn't say you. He says, "I hear you're leading an opposition to me." And of course, now I hate I hate this part of it, but I denied it uh, because I was trying to protect the other guys. At least I could get out. And also, if I denied it. And I just got out of there, and there was no proof. Then, you know, maybe it wouldn't hurt me too bad. I I kind of believe that blackball stuff a little bit myself. Sure. So, yeah, I mean, well, for good reason. I don't know that you're completely blackball, but you know, there's certainly going to be issues moving forward. Well, I could have gone to Bill Watts, you know, the next day and said, "Well, there was a mix-up down here." (laughs) In hindsight, yeah. (laughs) And Bill could, yeah, yeah, true, and exactly in hindsight. But anyway. when, so I gave my notice, and but with, Ron, with my cohorts in this so-called crime, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> Ronnie Garvin and Malenko and uh, Bobby Orton and can't remember who, a couple other guys. Malenko, Ron Wright, but, Ron Wright, yeah, Ron and Don, and, uh, and enough talent to, to to be able to put on a card. We decided to go off anyway, which was a mistake, but we did it anyway. We worked the last. I worked two more weeks, and we we made plans and this we didn't tell anybody that uh we were going to walk out after the uh, knoxville show and ronnie and malenko were the main event fuller didn't come down on those guys now back to slater the 1500 bucks i i loaned him i knew that if i if i just left uh without collecting that money that i would never get it sure and i had no idea if i was going to be you know, be out of the wrestling business. If I was, I wouldn't have any kind of a, you know, any way to put any pressure on him at all, except personally threatening him or, you know, whatever. So the week before, say the week at Knoxville, the week before, and the reason I did it at Knoxville 
was because we got paid at Knoxville, uh, and you could get paid in cash. So I got a Slater. He owed me fifteen hundred bucks. I asked him to pay me uh, the week before we left. Asked him to pay me the full amount. He said, "Oh man, I can't do that." Blah blah blah. Oh, I left something out. What, what's Slater doing? This is this is hysterical. Slater is the new Booker, uh, and Slater's walking through the, the locker room. He's actually got a book in his hand. I I never saw a Booker ever. I mean, he might have the book in his office or whatever, but you got your bookings in your head. And Slater's walking through with the book because he wanted to show everybody, hey, I'm the Booker. I'm surprised you didn't get a great big one, like three or four feet long. And uh, but, I mean, he's walking through with the book, which again was hilarious. But uh, of course, now at the time, 40 some years have gone by. At the time I was then was, oh, this guy, I despised him. You know, he, we had a chance to get a union. Here's a guy that comes, you know, comes in there and squashes it. And just the, the worst kind of stooge possible to go and sell out his, you know, his allies. If he'd have come to me and said, look, you know, I don't want to have any part of it and all that, that'd be one thing. So anyway, uh, I got, I think, uh, 750 or I got half of it the week before. So now it's the last night. Uh, the week later, and we're going, we're leaving the next day. Nobody knows this stuff does. Fuller had, doesn't have a clue, and Slater doesn't have a clue. But Ronnie Garvin, Malenko, Bob Orton, Junior, myself, uh, Ron Wright. Now the Wrights weren't figured out and real, real, real heavily, but they would have, they would have been, they would have meant something, and they did mean something on cards that we had after that on our own cards, our opposition cards. Their names meant something because they've been rustling around there, scuffling hillbillies and all that for years. So the last night, I went to Slater again, and he was kept telling me, "No, I can't. I can't afford it. I can't do it." And, and so I, what I did, I I, made, I waylaid him in a room. All the boys, I, like if there's like 20 guys there, they're all in one big room. About oh, most of them are there. The guys who there might have been some guys in the ring wrestling, but most of the guys were there. So I told Slater, I stopped him when he was walking through, and I said, look, you know, when you were down, when you were hurt, you laid on my couch and all that, I got you 800 bucks a week. You got paid the first two weeks. You never even worked, and you got 800 bucks a week. Right. Plus, I loaned you 1,500 bucks. Now, I'm leaving. They knew I was leaving. My notice was up that night. I said, I'm leaving to go off, and, you know, who knows if I can even get a job. And you still owe me $750. And you say you can't pay me? I said, what do I need to do? Do I need to get down on my knees and beg you for the money? And I embarrassed him to the point where he had to, you know, the boys are all watching this. I mean, there's not a buzz going there. No, nobody's talking. No, they're all watching this. Uh, and I, believe me, I wasn't menacing at all. Slater uh, bowed to the pressure, and he went and got the money. Now, if he hadn't, I'm not sure what I would have done. but. Uh, I'm telling you, he probably would have had at least one or two broken bones because, uh, you know, like I say, what I've been talking about for the last 10 minutes, uh, this guy has some serious heat with me. Well, you know, I've been talking for about 10 minutes, Ray. You, you, gotta, you, you, gotta, you wanna give our audience a, a chance to breathe and ask something or you want me to continue? Well, I'm trying to think. Let's see. I mean, you covered pretty much, you know, you covered your background with Dick Slater. You knew him for quite a while at this point. He broke in in the Florida Territory. You were there at the time. You've known Dickie for years now, off and on. Uh, you bring him up to Knoxville. You get him paid. 
And, um, he's, you know, I, I've heard the story about Wahoo and the gun and, and what they told the, the police or whatever the case was there to get, <laughs> to get, to get him out of that, to get Wahoo out of that situation. But so he comes up, he rehabs on your couch. I've heard that also. You're leaving town. We know why. Well, you're not really leaving town, but you're leaving the Fuller promotion. We all know why. We'll get into that in a later date anyway, much deeper. But uh, so Slater's the one that blows the whistle. That's also been, you know, told time and time again by multiple sources. So that's not debatable either. That brings us to here. And he owed you this money, which I'd heard. I didn't know how much it was, but I just, I guess the only question up until this point that I have is he still owed you, let's just say seven fifty. dollars uh, He gave it to you incomplete there. He paid it completely off. Yes, he gave okay. me the seven fifty the second okay. night. Now we uh, now all this was preface. So for any listeners out there, I mean, there might have been people that weren't born uh, at that time yet right. that are listening to this. So I want to know the background of, of what I what my motive was in my future dealings with, with Dick Slater. So okay, we went opposition, and we're we involved. Let's over a period of a month or a few months. We were running, uh, we were running a, a show in Knoxville at the fairgrounds or something like that. There was some kind of park or something we were at, and of course Fuller kept running at uh, at the uh, stadium. I had gone over to the stadium a couple of times during their shows. Uh, they wouldn't let me in the back. I bought a ticket and I went in. You know, when I bought a ticket, they had to let me in, and I, I sat the closest I could get was like uh, maybe ten, twelve rows back. And I just sat there and watched the matches, but I didn't. I didn't have any plans at all about running in the ring. Uh, I just made them nervous, and I was I was trying to embarrass them uh, because you know the fans there had a, had an idea of what was going on. Well, at the same time, we're advertised in a newspaper, the Locksville Times, I think it was called, and where our wrestling ad got to the point where uh, for two or three shows in a row, we we booked Dick Slater against myself in a loser leave town match. And if the person who didn't show up was a chicken and uh, oh. we had a big picture of a chicken on there and all that. Well, you know, well, I mean, we put that was that ran the paper. You know, it was in the ad was in the paper every day for several weeks. And, <laughs> wow. and you know, so imagine how Slater was feeling. He's supposed to be a big, tough guy. And he did beat up some people. But uh, most of the time they started to the fight by a sucker punching up from behind or throwing something in their face and then sucker punching them. We'll get to that in a second. But what had happened, there was a uh, there was a motel bar there. What was the name of it? Uh, the lounge. Anyway, a, a bar that was a hangout for the wrestlers. I mean, heels and baby faces after the matches would go in there. Oh, wow. After, Knox, after Knoxville, they would both be in there. Now, they didn't sit together, of course. Uh, one, they, you would have the room between you, but, you know, the Fans didn't seem to be bothered by it, and well, we we had quit going there. I mean, uh, our opposition group, we had quit going there, and that bothered me uh, because it looked like we were intimidated by those guys. So right. I decided to go down there by myself, and because if I took Ronnie and Bobby and all that, I didn't want to get into a you know some kind of a free for all where we tore up the place, and that would that would hurt us worse than them. So I decided to go in there by myself. I had to have to have a pair of cowboy boots. I don't even remember where I got them. I also had a blackjack that was ooh, about 12 to 14 inches long that was actually given to me or maybe sold to me by the chief of police in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, who had been our uh, head of security down there. And he and I got to know each other and 
became kind of at least good acquaintances. So he gave it to me just for that reason. He said, you might need it sometimes, you know. So he suggested it. Uh, so I put the strap, there was a black leather, hard leather covering some kind of metal rod that kind of fits uh, in, inside. I, and I put it in my boot. So I went down to the bar by myself and uh, the <laughs> all the guys, Tommy Rich, we were just talking about, Tommy was there that night. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm keeping an eye on Slater, but somehow I lost track of him for a second. He had come up behind me and he said something about, he said, well, Roof, why don't you call me a coward now? And I said, I managed to keep my poise. Uh, I said, well, I don't have to call you any a coward. I think anybody that knows you knows that you are one. Wow. And so <laughs> he he tried to throw a drink in my face. He had a he had a four inch glass, a, a big a, a big round one, that was full of whiskey, uh, vodka or something, liquor. He tried to throw it in my face, and I I sidestepped, and before I could do anything, I saw a couple guys grab me. Now I have to, I was very 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 lucky, or you, we wouldn't probably wouldn't be here talking today. I'd be in prison for having Slater would have uh, left this earthly coil long before he died eventually did, but I was talking to a guy in the bar. He had to, he was, I think he was security there, you know, nice guy. And, uh, we had, we'd known each other for most of the time since I've been there. Uh-huh. He happened to have a, he happened to have one of those two foot long flashlights. Just, I, I don't think, I think he used it as if he needed like his zap. Well, when Slater threw the booze and I got grabbed, Slater stepped forward to sucker punch me. And when he did, the guy whacked him. I don't know if he hit him in the head. I don't think he did because he didn't have any blood. But he whacked him with that flashlight. And as soon as that happened, Flater said, oh, my God, he's not alone. And he took off. So these guys pushed me out of the bar. And one of them, and this is a guy who's still alive named Hoot Gibson. Hoot was, I mean, he's hanging on to my right arm. Why? Let, let, me, st- let me stop you just real quick, Bob. And we okay. Get- I'm I'm only doing this because it could confuse a few people out there that actually really know their their history in wrestling. There were actually two Hoot Gibsons. There was the prelim guy who worked the ICW for Poffo and things of that nature. But Robert Gibson of the Rock and Roll Express also had the nickname Hoot Gibson. So which one are you talking about here? Are you talking about Robert Gibson or are you talking about actually Hoot Gibson who worked down there in that Knoxville area in, in the ICW? I'm talking about Knoxville Hoot. Okay. He did. He was like a mortician, I think, at a funeral home. He, you oh. know, he prepared bodies for for burial. Wow, that's, but, that's but, morbid, you know. <laughs> well, he was a good buddy with Garvin, you know, and he worked for us, and he was okay. Yeah. You know, but afterwards, I asked him, "What the are you holding me for?" I said, "You're holding me." He was holding me when. Well, let yeah. me let me continue down the story. Sure. They pushed me out of the bar. There were two entrances: one up from the outside, and one from the inside. The one they pushed me out into was a hallway, and about six feet from the uh, the entry, the door to the bar, which opened out into the hallway, was a door to the lobby, and that was closed. Well, they pushed me up against that door, and I'm trying to get the guys to let go of me, and uh, they were, you know, the fight got them all shook up or something. I got two guys, one guy on each arm, one guy behind me holding me by the waist, and the, the, the door opens. We almost fell through it, and I look up, and Andre the Giant's standing there. And I thought, well, uh, I hope I hope he's not working for the other side here because <laughs> I really don't want nuts from him. I don't care how many blackjacks I got, but he, you know, he would he he didn't have anything to do with it. He just in fact he just said, oh hey, oh, and he went in the bar. 
Well, they're holding on to me. I'm telling them, trying to get them to let go of me. And Slater walks out of the bar. Now, I'm standing five feet away with three guys holding me. He walks out of the bar, and he took, he, instead of coming towards me, he takes a left, and he go, he's leaving. He's walking, instead of going out the door uh, to the outside where everybody inside, including all the guys working for him, would see him leave. He comes out the hallway door like he's maybe going up to get a room or go to the back, you know, for some reason. But he was actually tr trying to get out of there. And I knew that if he left, if he got out of there, the way it ended up like right then, the story would go out there. And it did anyway. The story would go out there the way he kicked my butt because I hadn't done anything to him. Well, you were being held back, too. So it was like people were, quote unquote, saving you from getting beat up further, even though you weren't touched at this point. Yeah, yeah. So I, I immediately said, hey, where are you going? I said, what, are you leaving? Yeah, I knew you were gutless. I said, look, I got three guys holding me. That's not enough. You still with three guys holding me, you won't take me on? Come on, you gutless chicken shit. You know, and of course he had to come because these guys are all listening. Right. And two of them are rustlers. <laughs> you know, telephone, telegram, tell a rustler. They heard me calling a chicken shit. And what is he, he can't he can't just leave because that would prove I was right. So here he comes. Now, meanwhile, I had my right arm. I'd been fighting and I had it clenched, but I extended it, lifted my right leg far enough that I got my hand on a blackjack. And when Slater came, he grabbed me. I was bobbing and weaving so he couldn't just walk up and and you know just out of the blue just blast me and knock me cold because he could right. punch. That's uh, right he, here. He was, yeah, he could, and that, he always sucker punch guys, but. So he grabbed me by the hair, and the first time I made a swipe at him, I just kind of grazed him. But the second time, I got a second shot, mm -hmm. and I whacked him good. I whacked him good right on the temple, and it, it busted him open. I mean, it wasn't like 15, 20 stitches, but he was bleeding. And uh, he backed up, and about Tommy Rich came out of the bar about that time. Slater let Tommy Rich grab him and pull him out of the bar, pull him out of that hallway. And obviously, he wanted Tommy to pull him out of there. So I, I said it. I said out loud, that's right. You better let that guy pull you out of here before I kill you. So off they went. I'll swear. <laughs> this is not almost too much. But I'm not going to swear on my children's life. I'll just say this. Dick Slater has never put one fingernail on me in anger. He's never punched me. He's never scratched me. He's never bit me. He's never kicked me. He's never done one thing to me. But no, he never put one. I was reading, you talked about Terry Funk earlier. I was reading his book. I liked it. Terry signed it to me. You know, he was selling it at Waterloo to a great guy. Bob, I'm reading his book and I loved it. I got halfway through it and I read about Dick Slater beating Bob Roop. And Bob Roop was a really tough guy. So, so you know, and <laughs> oh, I closed the book. I still hadn't finished it. Uh, <laughs> so. Oh, and I always wanted to tell Terry, too, but I never got a chance. And now he's gone. But, I mean, I just want to tell him, Terry, I don't know what you heard, but I want you at least hear another another side of it. Right. So, anyway, uh, that was the fight with Dick Slater. And it wasn't, it wasn't a fight. He never laid, you know, a fight takes two people need to do some kind of offensive action. His deal was once his, his sneak attack uh, the sucker punch and all that. He had a history of doing it all the way back to when he was a teenager. He and Mike Graham would go out. And, uh, I heard this from a friend. I'm not going to middle their friend by saying his name, but there's someone who knew them both very well all through high school. 
they would go out to the bars where uh, servicemen from McDill Air Force Base would be in the bar and they would wait for some guy to come out by himself. And Mike, Mike Graham would get in his face and call him with some kind of puke or something. And while the guy was paying attention to Mike, Slater would come up behind him and sucker punch the guy and they'd both put the boots to him and take off. Now, I heard that from a friend of theirs or, you know, a guy who knew him or grew up with him. When I talk about Slater being a sucker puncher, <laughs> you know, it, it's fighting is funny. Paul Orndorff beat up Van Bader from what yes. I hear. Yes, stop so in flip-flops. I was, just, I was astounded to hear that because not that I thought Paul wasn't capable. I just didn't think he had a like a fighting heart that way. But again, it might be because of the way that guys were with me. And I'm not trying to say, oh, I'm this big bad guy, but you know, I was an Olympian. And all those guys knew, like Paul knew from working out with me when he broke in, I took him down with ease. You know, I'd have him down on a, you know, we'd be facing each other. He'd be down on a mat without knowing how he got there and on his back. And I'd be on, you know, I'd be in there putting him like where I could put him in a sugar hole if I wanted to. So they knew, you know, they knew. And then now 10 years later, I'm not that same guy that was training them 10 years back. But I still, as far as they knew, I still had it. I still had the ability to do it. Plus, I could fight. You know, I mean, I can kick and punch and bite and pick up rocks and whatever, just like anybody else. No, they didn't. I don't think anyone, any one of them had wanted to have anything to do with me. Slater had to do something when I came in the bar, and that was my reason for going there. Was I wanted to let them know that I didn't actually expect him to fight me, but uh, I was glad he did. And that, then again, when the story gets out that, uh, oh, yeah, Slater beat Bob Roof. <laughs> yeah, right. I just would like to, I'd like to just say this. I'm an Olympian. I was a national champion. I was of military service. I was a paratrooper. I made 11 jumps. I was a special forces trainee. Uh, I didn't get my green braid because I needed to reenlist for three years in order to had the time to complete my training mm -hmm. and I didn't want to do that. I wanted to go back to, I had an offer to go back to college in Russell. So uh, on a wrestling scholarship. So I took that instead, but I did get the, I did a year and a half of training with green berets. Uh, you think if Slater had beat me up in a bar that there wouldn't have been some comeback that I wouldn't have found him somewhere alone, just me and him. Anybody out there that thinks that, I mean, how could someone with that kind of background, how would they take, a beating like that and just let it stand, especially in a business where your reputation is what people says it is. You know, oh, Rook got beat up by Slater. And all the guys that hate shooters would love that because, you know, they think because I could wrestle for real, I had I had to be some kind of rotten guy. And yet I never, ever even got stiff with anybody working the ring with me that didn't do it, you know, didn't start it. And that only happened in foreign in, in foreign countries, not in the United States. So anyway, uh, that was the extent of the fight. I uh, so not really Slater, much of a fight from really from either side. I mean, you clocked him a good one, but really it wasn't like a fight fight. No, uh, as compared to the story that I've heard from various sources, or at least a couple sources. I can't say various. I don't know Terry Funk's book. I've read Terry Funk's book. I just don't recall that part of it because it's such a a great book, but a very long book and lots of. Other things I was more focused on in there, but you you've always you know you've talked highly about Terry Funk and your time in Amarillo, the fun fun times you've had with him. So it's not like you know you've ever degraded him or, or go against the things that Terry says or does. But in this instance, Terry was told a story, and yeah. you know he he wrote it in his book as fact, and maybe you know the proof wasn't there, you know, and it was in there anyway. 
But I've actually heard Dick tell the story in a shoot interview in the past. Uh, basically, the story, not a whole lot to it. I mean, it wasn't like some major thing. But he said that, yeah, he got clocked. He said one time with the blackjack. But apparently, you didn't hit him hard enough because it didn't do anything to him. And then he, you know, I guess he, he proceeded to beat you up. That was Dick Slater's version of it. But I've also <laughs> heard Ric Flair tell the story, which blows my mind because he wasn't even there. But he told well, the story. Let me, let me say something. Please do. Please do. Rick, if you're listening, uh, you and I are both uh, honorees in the uh, Waterloo Hall of Fame. I hope to see you there next year. Wow. I want to ask you about this. Where you got this story and why are you telling it? Okay, so, uh, so, it's a lie. I'm telling you right now, you are telling a lie. Woo! Well, I, I don't know. I guess he got the story from Slater. I don't know. I don't think he says where, because the way he tells it, it was like he was there. Like, it's fact. Like, he was like, oh, yeah. I think it was on his podcast. You know, I could be wrong. I can't remember where I heard him say it, but it was in recent weeks, maybe a month or two ago, that I heard this. I just happened to cross over this. It may have been on YouTube. But Flair said that he was talking about how badass Dick Slater was and how he could knock people out and, you know, really screw them up. And he says, oh, and then he uses you as the reference. Oh, yeah, knock that Bob Roop out. He was laid out in a pool of his own blood. Blood all around. You know, like, like I envisioned you the way Flair told the story. You're laying there knocked out, I guess, blood pouring out of your head. It's the way I envisioned the way Flair told the story. But he didn't just tell it. He told it like, you know, he didn't say I was there, but he told it as if he was there. He saw this. And, and Slater never even told the story that way. So that's why it really blew my mind. Well, I will tell you something. I'm, I'm burning a little bit right now. <laughs> <laughs> that pisses me off. Rick, I'm going to be talking to you. He <laughs> uh, sounds like you enjoy telling that story. Yeah. Uh, I, let me give give some uh, another reference here. Give me some credibility. I didn't get away unscathed during my whole wrestling career. After I had retired from active wrestling, uh, I was uh, in my 40s. I went to a show in in Miami, and Blackjack Mulligan was on the show, and Jack and I had worked together. Uh, we had worked together. <laughs> When I was with the Prince of Darkness, I'd worked against Jack a bunch of times, right. as Mayha is saying, and so, but he had quit when Kevin didn't get the book, and I did. Mulligan quit. And so I walk in the dressing room and say hi to him, and uh, he walks up, and I made the mistake of looking away from him. All of a sudden, I'm on the floor, and uh, bang, zoom, and he's on top of me, and he's just raving, and he's trying to, he's trying to punch me again. And I managed to fight my way out from underneath him. And because when he hit me, it cut my eyelid and I was bleeding down into the, my left eye. I and it was numb there. He had punched me right over the eye. I thought maybe my eye was damaged. So I wasn't going to stay. And plus, I'm in a dressing room where I'm, I'm, I'm not booked. I just went in there because, you know, I, we were running a wrestling company down there. Right. Dr. Roberts and Mike. Mike Brandon and I were together and went down just, you know, Cosro was on the show. I went down to say hello to some guys. And Mulligan had a history of doing that kind of thing. In fact, a couple of days later, I was talking to Cosro, Missouri, told me that he saw Mulligan in the hotel later that night. And Mulligan told him to tell me that he was sorry, that he didn't, you know, he just lost it. Okay. And he had done that before. He had done well, he had it. He did it to Buck Robley one time. He did it to Ole one time. So Holy wow. Anderson I, and Blackjack Mulligan, I would pay to see that one. You know, I heard the story that he got into it like that with Andre one time in a hotel room, and uh, they come blasting out the door, fighting, like r wrestling, kind of grappling, fighting, but they were fighting legitimately. 
And like they were perfectly fine the next day, but I guess Mulligan just kind of started it with Andre out of the blue. So he clearly didn't care who he picked to fight with. Well, he just, he'd lose it. You know, I don't, I don't know what his, his, you know, psychological problem was, but obviously he had one because I hadn't done anything to him. And I would get, like I said, he told Cosro to tell me, I talked to him years later. I called and I was going to look him up too. Uh, you know, maybe Blackjack? he'd have been a, yeah, maybe okay. if he, uh, yeah, because he sucker punched me. I was, oh, I yeah, was, you don't, you just, don't forget about, I wasn't like going to just take it. I right. mean, I had it on my, on my resume now that Brooke got knocked up as a uh, head over and Tony Atlas. Hey, Tony, uh, Tony Atlas was there. Sure. And I jumped up down, get him, Jack, get him. Oh, like wow. he wanted him to kill me. So I don't, I don't have a lot of fondness for, for Tony Atlas. Even now, even 35, <laughs> 40 years later, you know, you don't forget some things like that. Yeah, I had never, I had never put myself in a position to be sucker punched because I didn't have it coming. If I had it coming, I would go in with a suit of armor on and a machine gun in my hands. If I got it coming, and I have to go in there, but no, I didn't have it coming. Nobody needed to sucker punch me because I hadn't done anything to him. Right, and well, I didn't do anything. I didn't do anything to Jack. So, you no, know, what happened? But, you know, you need to wait a few years. If you're going to look somebody up and you're going to do something serious, you need to wait a while. Uh, I, now, don't get me wrong. I don't make a habit of doing this. But this this deserved redress. I needed to do it for my own peace of mind. But you don't you do not do it to where you end up going to jail. you got to do it in a way that's smart. So you let three or four years go by. Well, the years went by, and Blackjack went to prison for counterfeit. Counterfeit, right, yeah. And only the sad thing was he took poor Kendall, his son, with him. Right. And I really like, I like Jack okay, but I really like Kendall. Yeah, you and, made that clear last episode, yeah. And, and Barry, yeah, I like, those guys are good guys. I like them a lot. And, uh, you know, great talents. <laughs> poor, so Kendall, Kendall's <laughs> poor buddy. I'm buddy, buddy Colt. <laughs> yeah, you said he's too skinny. I'm telling you, I made a guy the perfect white meat baby face. You just, <laughs> you know, and plus he had all these warrants for, from people he'd beat up in bars. And you're, right. you're saying he's too skinny. Should, well, should have put that right. over on TV. Kendall went up for any doubters out there. We just want you to know he has all these warrants out for him right now. So, Yeah, <laughs> yeah apparently apparently in real life, he's just not all that skinny. <laughs> or or that much of a baby face, for that matter. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, anyway, so uh, I'm telling a story about myself, about Blackjack Mulligan. Right. I got knocked flat. I mean, I was a, one minute I'm standing, the next minute... I'm on my back, and he's on top of me. Right. So it's not like I went through my whole life and career without being ever, you know, scale, you know, unscathed. But you know, I to me, Jack going to prison was enough payback as far as I was concerned. Okay. I was really sad that Kendall had to go too. You know, he got caught up in the in the mess too. But you know, what what more? I mean, you know, finding a guy taking a baseball bat to his knees or something like that. How's that going? I mean. Four or three or four years in prison certainly tops that. Plus, I don't have to be involved. I don't have to compromise my own freedom and you know and conscience doing something like that. But right. you know, I, I have been thinking about it. So I only trot that out to go back to Slater because it really grinds me. I don't mind Blackjack Mulligan knock me down. I mind that Slater touch me with one fingernail because he wasn't capable. What kills me about this is even when Slater told the story, even if it's inaccurate, it's not like he overdid it. Like he just said he got hit with a blackjack. It wasn't hard enough to do serious damage to knock him out or anything. And then 
he proceeded to beat you up, which is enough. I get it. If you're Bob Roop, that's, you know, that's too much. But he didn't go, he didn't embellish it to where I had his eye hanging out and, you know, all this other nonsense that you could do when you're making these, these things up. It was just, we had a fight and I won, whether he won or not. You're telling the story is, hey, man, I got him good. And, you know, the fight was kind of broken up or Slater took off, whatever you want to call that. So it really wasn't a whole big giant deal, but it got turned into one, you know, through these other wrestlers, like you say, telephone, telegraph, tell a wrestler. And, you know, they all tell their own versions of the story. And obviously, you know, uh, Dickie told the story a lot more than you did over the years. So, you know, he, he's the one that came out the winner. Ric Flair, though, I think he overdid it because I've never even heard Slater address it in that fashion. So that's that's what that's the one where I just kind of rolled my eyes and I I kind of considered the source there. Uh, but again, guys, you know, don't don't hate Bob for what I have to say. That's just my opinion with the nature boy. And again, I loved his work, loved his matches. But, uh, you know, whenever we talk about, you know, some of these guys, their real life uh, persona, if you will. It's just, you know, not my cup of tea. Uh, but uh, yeah, that was just an interesting story. It took, uh, it took a while to get through. And I'm not saying that in a negative way at all. I love that you broke it down. You went back in time. You talked all about your past dealings with Dick. Never really had a problem with him there. And you guys, you kind of poked the bear there with, the, with those, those uh, chicken things in the paper. I love that. That's awesome. But that would happen a lot between Jerry Jarrett and, uh, well, actually Lawler. Well, the, the Popo promotion more so than, than the Jerry Jarrett side. But they would call them out on TV and stuff. You know, probably know a little bit about that. But um right. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's kind of fun to hear that, that those sort of things. But obviously, Dick Slater had no option but to you know get it on with you there. You came looking for him, so to speak, and it, it was what it was. And I, I'm assuming, did you ever cross paths with him again in Georgia or anything like that? Uh, when I was booking in Florida, uh, we were thinking uh, South Florida, maybe in Miami. I, I don't somewhere we're in the gym. I don't remember why, but the dressing room was in kind of a place that had some weights in it. And Slater came in. He he didn't walk up to me, but he he came in and you know I nodded at him and asked him what he wanted. You know I'd been here a few years since Knoxville, mm -hmm. and you know I just nodded at him and you know what do you want? And you know he said I came to talk to so and so and whatever. No, I wouldn't. I wouldn't keep my eyes on him when he walked in. I knew he would didn't have anything on his mind. Right. But you know he's gone and and uh, let's put things in perspective. Slater made the news twice after he, I don't even remember, I don't know how he ended up being in a wheelchair at a very young age, but he was. And twice, not once, but twice, he was arrested one time for stabbing. Attempted murder. Attempted murder mm -hmm. on a woman who was living with him, taking care of him. He stabbed her, and where did he stab her? He stabbed her in the back. She was trying to get away from him. And and he was arrested, of course. I, what I saw was on the internet. I saw it wasn't they didn't have TikTok then, but whatever. I saw a mugshot of him twice, of beating up women. <laughs> one of them was Luna, you know, oh, Luna okay. Vachon. Yeah. And and uh, the second one, I don't know. I don't know yeah, if he I... stabbed. I think he just beat her up. But but he she told she told me about that. But uh, the woman he stabbed. It was attempted murder. And she was trying to get away from him. He stabbed her in the back. Well, how? What should I say to uh, that could be any worse than that? And what he said about himself with that kind of behavior? Well, that's that's uh, what kills me. You know, I go on the Facebook, and every once in a while, somebody just wants to say, get, try to get get at me, I guess. And, and it doesn't really, you know, it's like okay, but you know, it's just out of the blue. You know, I'll post a new show, Bob Roop, episode ten. This is what we're talking about, and somebody just randomly responds. Why don't you ask Bob about the time Dick Slater kicked his ass? Why don't you ask Bob about, you know, so 
I get those, and that's why I wanted to do this here. But it's kind of funny how some of these people would rather listen to Ric Flair and then Dick Slater, who has attempted to murder someone, you know, female or male. He's, you know, attempted murder. I mean, that's out there, guys. It happened. It's in the news. You can go Google it right now. You'd rather trust what he says versus Bob Roop because once upon a time, Bob Roop tried to run against Ron Fuller. <laughs> Where are your morals, <laughs> wrestling fans? I just, I just don't understand it. Well, yeah, yeah, but yeah, I know Dick Slater tried to kill that girl, but you know, Bob Roop ran against Ron Fuller. That's not cool. Yeah. So it's just, yeah, it's, she probably, <laughs> she probably had it coming. She was helping Roop run against Ron Fuller. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> oh, I yeah. didn't even put that together. Okay. Is yeah. that what happened? <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. But now, yeah, so I, I love that we were able to, you know, go, you know, go through that whole story and just kind of pick it apart. And and, and I want to do this too. I want to clarify this too, Bob, real quick before we move on and whatever else you, you got to say. But uh, there was a story, and it's not a story, it actually happened. 1986, a very young Sting, people know where I'm going with this. Uh, apparently he took a ride. He was very young, green to the business. He took a ride to a show for Bill Watts in the UWF by Dark Journey, who at the time was the girlfriend of Dick Slater for at least another week or two anyway. And uh, that was a no-no, <laughs> at least, you know, in Dick Slater's world. He proceeds to enter the uh, locker room and beat the living piss out of Sting. Uh, he roughed him up pretty good, from my understanding. And Sting was teaming with the future Ultimate Warrior at the time. And so the story goes, Dick Murdoch came in, and he held, he pinned the Warrior up against the wall while the fight was going on. Murdoch wasn't really trying to get involved in the fight. He just wanted to make sure the Warrior wasn't going to help Sting out. That's all Murdoch was doing. But I guess Slater beat the piss out of Sting and then stuck his face in the toilet, gave him a swirly. And uh, a lot of people confuse that with your fight as well. They, they confuse all of this. I've even heard people insert you into the Wahoo story with the gun. So people get all of this mixed up and they don't really, you know, they're not able to dissect it all. So I wanted to point that out here too, that you were not involved in the gun incident with Wahoo. You were not involved with a toilet anywhere that I'm aware of anyway. So I just wanted to clarify all these things happened individually. Well, Slater's dead. The Ultimate Warrior's gone, unfortunately. Uh, it's way too young. And uh, Murdoch's gone. Right. I'm still here. And uh, Hoop Gibson, you know, Tommy Rich was the one that pulled Slater. I mean, look, Slater was pushing Tommy <laughs> to pull him out of there. He was, try he was trying to let Tommy know, hey, pull me out quick. But Tommy might not remember it that way. I was going to say, do you, do you think Tommy even right. remembers well, that night? I don't, I don't know. <laughs> Tommy, uh, I've I, I made an allusion to it about the thing in, in Cleveland. He was going to kick my butt. Tommy has not always been a big fan of mine. And mm -hmm. uh, so I don't know. Maybe he's, he prefers, uh, and you, like you say, who knows how clear anybody's mind has been. Right. Well, there's a time. lot of guys that don't even remember what happened in their own world sometimes, just from years of, you know, time. So I, I right. guess, you know, I, I get what you're saying there, too. I mean, maybe they remember it wrong. Maybe they don't remember it at all. Maybe it was a blip on the radar because, you know, it's wrestling and a lot of crazy shit went on back in the day. Uh, to a point, and this isn't, you know, I'm not, I'm not trying to curry favor with you, but you got people. If you got people giving you grief over your, your product, your website, and all the, all the, all the wrestling information you have out there, you're going to have that. You know why? You've got a good product, and you're successful, and you're going to get people that, that don't have a pot to piss in in terms of being able to do what you do, who are going to say, oh, I, you know, you blah blah blah. blah. Something about you, it would be like if someone of great note got a DUI or something, right? Uh, and and then you said, well, your whole career and your your whole life of you you know you spent your life uh, saving crippled children and and getting them healed and all that, but you had that DUI, so now I know you're really a 
rotten guy. You know, your whole life you've been a rotten guy at heart. Uh, you're going to get grief from people. It's good in a way because, you know, it gives us something to talk about. Uh, you know what might be fun somewhere down the line is to have a seminar uh, with me and Flair. And I don't know, I guess uh, <laughs> maybe get who gets it. I don't know, Tommy, I don't know what he would remember. But to get some other people in there, uh, you know, Ronnie Garvin and Orton and, well, Malenko's gone. They can tell you that I, if Slater beat me up, I would have had a mark on me somewhere. Right. And, you know, I mean, never. I, in fact, I didn't have much of a mark from Mulligan, although I, I did have some swelling for, you know, but I put ice on it right away. And my eyelid, the blood in my eye was my eyelid had a little cut on it. Uh, no, I wasn't even from that. I was fortunate. I, you know, he could have hit me in the mouth and knocked my teeth out or sure. broken my jaw or broken my nose or or injured my eye. Well, Mulligan know? was so, a big dude. I mean, I'm sure his, yeah. his hand was probably kind of like that Harley Race hand. I'm sure you've seen that a few times. <laughs> right. Well, I'm standing there relaxed, you know. I'm not tensed up or I'm just like, so, you know, he was able to hit me while I was looking away from him. Sure, yeah. Uh, and, you know, and yeah, I was lucky. I was able to, uh, he would have hurt me much worse if I hadn't been able to get myself out from underneath him. But adrenaline has a way of working that way. So, yeah, I, I, you know, I've been on the, the, the wrong side of violence and, you know, the downside of getting my butt, you know, harmed. You've been wronged. You know, <laughs> yeah, I've been rocked. And so yeah. I know what it feels like. I don't have a problem that it was Mulligan that did it. Uh, I said earlier that I was going to redress things, if, but him going to prison was worse than anything I had in mind for him. So mm. fate took care of it for me. If you do violence against people, even if it's justified, uh, you tarnish your own psyche and your emotional, you know, your your self-respect and all that sort of thing. Right. It's one thing if you're defending yourself or defending your loved ones, defending the you know the right or the or the good of your society. But if it's just a personal thing that you're embarrassed or whatever, you know, you got to give tit for tat. You know, if somebody smacked you, so you got to go break their leg or whatever. That's never good for you. So I'm glad I didn't have to do it. It would make me less of a person than I am today, and not that, that what I am today is anything, you know, about, you know. But, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm at peace with myself, and I, I think that's one of the attributes that keep people uh, alive, right. is that, you know, they can look at themselves in the mirror, and they're not repulsed or anything by what they see. So, again, the thing with, with Slater, Dickey was his own worst enemy. And, you know, with that stuff he did with the girls. I can only uh, speak from a fan standpoint and Dick Slater. Never met the guy. Don't know him. I've read some things, obviously, you know, attempted murder and things of that nature. You got to question, call into question uh, the character of Richard Van Slater. However, at the same time, as a fan growing up, I liked Dick Slater. I liked his style. I thought he was a great heel, probably for good reason. But, you know, obviously I've read and heard stories for decades now about maybe just a little bit how off Dick Slater was outside of the business or outside of the ring. Dickie was a natural. He took to the ring right away. I mean, much quicker than I did. Back to Terry Funk's book for a second. Uh, Slater adored Terry Funk. He wanted to be wanted Terry, to be Terry Funk. Funk. Right, yeah. He, yeah. he wanted to be Terry Funk. He walked around. He actually started walking and acting like he was left-handed for a while. And he's not. He's right-handed. <laughs> but he, he would be, he'd walk around left-handed. And he wanted to be Terry Funk. He adored Terry. He wanted to be just like him. He tried to be... He, and, you know, Slater, I think, thought he could be other people if he just tried hard enough. 
but he just adored Terry. Oh, and yeah. so when I know that, I can understand why Terry would write something in his book. You know, I mean, Terry and I got along. I, I love Terry Funk. I mean, I didn't know him well enough personally, but his term as a, as a colleague, as a member of the same business I was in, and the interactions that I had with them, they were all really great. And, you know, I really, so Terry, and Terry was a lovable guy. The story I told you about, you know, with the beer, you know, the, his pants falling down in the gas station with the <laughs> right, cop. Right. And, and, that's all, that's all really funny stuff when I look back at it, you know, it made my life better. And so, uh, how could it not? You know, I, yeah. So like I say, I didn't say, oh, I wanted to find Terry Font and cuss him out. I said, I wanted to talk to him about it. Right. And just, you know, but no, I don't have any problem with Terry because you know why I respected Terry. I respected the hell out of him. Plus, when we worked together in, in West Palm Beach, I was the assistant booker. I was running the town, but it would have been absolutely malpractice for me not to get everything from Terry. Terry started booking probably when he was 10 years old, or at least running ideas through with his dad, or at least listening and hearing stuff. Right. And then, you know, with what his older brother was doing, Dory Jr., all that stuff that they were, that they were, that he was doing. So, you know, this guy was a one, he was like the, Smithsonian Museum, the Library of Congress of Pro Wrestling that I had at my disposal down there in Palm Beach. And he was kind enough to share a lot of stuff with me. So, yeah, I, you know, I love that guy. I mean, I was, again, I respected people in the business, but I didn't, there, I didn't have affection to go with it. Uh, but with Terry, I did. Okay. So I just want to say, I don't, I don't know part. too many people. I don't know anybody, honestly, who has anything bad to say. About Terry Funk, maybe you can tell the story, man. He made me mad that night. But I mean, in general, as a human being, everybody seemed to get along with Terry and like him, which is you know just uh, really great. Says a lot, you know, especially for somebody who was in the business as long as he was. Right. All right. Well, that was the story of the big bar fight between Bob Roop and Dick Slater. Everybody. So there. If you ever need to listen to anything about that again, we can reference this episode. So. We'll move on now. And last week, we kind of set the stage for this. We did a lot of talking about several wrestlers uh, that you encountered across your life there in the 1970s. Of course, Bobby Shane, Buddy Colt, the manager and wrestler Gary Hart, and of course, Austin Idol Dahlin. So we go back now, and we're going to talk about the plane crash that you were actually there. You, you didn't witness the crash, but you were there after the crash to help some of these guys out. That's what we're here to talk about today, because, you know, I went back and I looked through Gary Hart's book, and, and I'm sure there's some embellishment here, not trying to hurt anybody's feelings, not trying to hurt his son's feelings, who is a great guy, and, you know, he loved his dad. But I, I think even Austin Idol said, you know, some of these injuries that Gary Hart wrote about here weren't necessarily as bad as Gary, not, not you know, Bobby Sheen passed away. There's, that's fact. And some of these injuries were pretty bad. They, they did happen. But maybe Gary added to them, if, if that's fair to say. Um, but... That's what we're here today. We're going to talk about not necessarily what, what those guys remember, but what you remember from the other end, being there at the bay after the plane crash and seeing these guys in, in this terrible accident. Okay. So uh, uh, what I want to do, if it's okay with you, Bob, is I'm, I'm not going to read directly out of Gary's book, but I did take some notes here just very briefly, and I'm not going to okay. get into what you saw or anything that happened after the crash. I'm just going to discuss what happened to lead to the crash that, that fateful night there. We go back actually to February 19th, 1975. You guys finished up a show in Miami. I'm assuming you were there as well. Um, yes. Now, after the matches, I guess it's reported that Shane Colt, Austin Idol, and Gary Hart, they left the arena. They went out to go get something to eat somewhere called Wolfie's, according to Gary Hart. Not sure if you remember that place. 
but they, they decide they're going to ride a plane to the next town over, over to Tampa. It's Buddy Colt flying the plane, single engine, to go back to Tampa Bay. Uh, so Buddy's flying the plane. He's got Austin Idol up next to him in the front, in the front and in the back behind them, Gary Hart and um, Bobby Shane. I guess the story goes, Buddy asked them if they wanted to go to Sarasota because there was reportedly going to be a storm in Tampa that night. But they spoke to somebody and they said, no, you'll be clear. Just come on through. And they decide, okay, we're headed off to Tampa Bay. And the uh, story from there goes, by the time they got to Tampa, everything was foggy. There was a bit of a little bit of a storm maybe there. And uh, there were issues. Apparently, uh, according, at least according to Austin Idol, Buddy Colt was only visually trained to fly a plane. He wasn't meter rated, which means he didn't really know how to read all the meters there, all the gadgets. So he was actually getting talked through how to land here because he couldn't really read the uh, the meter deal. So apparently they tried to land on first approach, and uh, at least according to Austin Idol, they were just a little too high to make the landing. So they had to go back around and try it a second time, and that's when I guess Idol realized, according to Gary Hart's book, Idol was the one that shouted out, pull up, you're, you know, you're going to hit the water. And Idol has, he hasn't said that part, but he said that he did see the white caps, and then boom, they crashed into the water. Uh, we're we're going to get into what you saw after that, and then I'll tell like Gary Hart's version, Austin Idol's version. We're going to see what jives and what doesn't. But at this point, Gary Hart does say in his book that the first person he sees is Bob Roop's girlfriend. So I'll let you take it from there and tell me how she got there or how she heard about it, how you got there, and you can just tell the entire story from here. And then after you're done, we'll look at uh, their version. Well, we, were, we knew we were behind uh, Buddy Cole's plane. Uh, by the way, it was a twin engine, and he was not uh, qualified yet to fly twin engines. He was also not qualified to take passengers, but that somehow made it. But I, mean, I, you know, Buddy's gone. I don't want to bring any grief to him. But we were behind them, and we, when we did get up to Sar- near Sarasota, we had been told we were going to have to la- we were going to have to land in Sarasota because the fog was so bad in Tampa that there there was no air, there was no place to land. Uh, the fog was too low. So, but once we got up near Sarasota, they said, well, it's opened up. Now, Buddy had, pull, had flown those guys from Tampa to Miami, and now he's bringing them back. Yeah, I think they the only difference him. was Austin Idol wasn't in the initial flight up. Gary Hart actually talked him into uh, taking this flight back down to Tampa. Okay, okay. Yeah, well, that, yeah, I did. I didn't know any of the details about that. No, yeah, I, I, just, I, I knew you weren't involved in any of that. I just want to, you know, right, give everybody right. kind of an idea of what was going on. And also, I think it was Tampa International was closed. So they were told they had to go, if they wanted to land at all, they had to go to Peter O'Knight, which is like a private airport or something like that. Oh, man. Yeah, it was a little bitty. Uh, uh, there's a little island type thing. That's what uh, Idol said. It was an island. Yeah, and the runway is real short. Untrained pilots should not be. Maybe taken off, but not landing on that thing, especially at night. In the fog. <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, well, the fog had lifted enough that once okay. he got probably below 100. But, you know, now here is the problem of knowing how having fog until you get down to 100 feet and, and by not being able to read the, the meter and the distance, uh, all the gauges that tell you where you are, uh, juxtaposition with the airport, that when you come out of the fog, you're too high, and the runway's right there. Uh, you're not going to now. A skilled pilot, uh, Ronnie Garvin, for example, could have made it. He would have just done it, scared the hell out of everybody by doing <laughs> it look like he was going to do a dive to get himself lower 
and like he was going to go, like you know, dive, like he was going to crash the plane, and then he pulled it up, but he, he'd lose 100 feet or whatever in, in a few seconds. But Buddy Colt didn't have the, the expertise to do that. Anyway, we were behind him, and uh, when we got to the, uh, the airport, what I saw was I saw my van. I had a Ford Econoline or something like that, non-glamorous vehicle. And my girlfriend would come to pick me up, and I see the van. It's tearing across uh, a field. Not There's roads, but there's a flat field. Instead of being on the road, uh, the van is tearing. I assume she's driving. It's tearing across this field back towards the airport, or uh, which is just a little bitty place. So we landed and get out, and she runs up, and she said, oh, uh, the plane crashed out there. I don't know if she told me it was Buddy Colt's plane, but anyway, she I jumped in the in the van and assumed if Buddy's plane wasn't there at the airport, so I assumed it was him. So jumped back in the in the van, and I was driving, but she directed me, tore back over there, and uh, she showed me where she had seen the guys coming up to the dock, but she was too small to pull them out. Uh, coming up to the seawall was about three feet high, but it was smooth at the top. It was cement or concrete, and it was smooth at the top. There wasn't anything you could grab. Even if you could get up high enough, there wasn't anything you could grab to pull yourself out, like a handhold, and there were no steps or anything. Now, there was a dock about 40 or 50 feet down, uh, but when I got there, all four of the guys, nobody was on land yet. Uh, They were all in the water. And I immediately reached, started pulling them out. And I don't remember, I think I pulled Gary out first because uh, he looked the worst. And, you know, when I pulled him out, I had his, I believe, his right arm uh, with my right arm. And then I pulled the, the rest of the guys out. And McCord was, uh, he just had to bat the toe. And so, you know, he was able to help me a little bit once I got him up uh, close enough to the seawall or up over the lip, he could help himself out. Colt needed help because his ankle was bad. Uh-huh. And, uh, of course, Bobby was, was not there. But uh, once I pulled Hart out, he was still laying. He was up, up like on an elbow. And uh, I noticed that he was bleeding pretty heavily from his head. It was dripping down on the—I uh, could see it. I had, to, I had a searchlight-type light on my, by my driver's side window that I had aimed down there. So he had some light down there. And I could see I could see the blood dripping off him. And I asked him, is there anybody, who else is with you? He said, well, Shane. So well, where is he? Well, we don't know. So I, I went, I mean, I'm only standing about two feet from the, from the seawall. So I look, I look out towards the bay. I mean, there's, I don't remember how dark it was, but um, I didn't, you know, I couldn't see anything really. So I, I thought about it for a minute about, you know, maybe going in and trying to, uh, to see about, uh, you know, see if I could find him. So, you know, if he was in the water, he would be, he would be gone. You know, he would have drowned by now. So, and, and, but I still thought about it. And now I knew about, I read the paper back then. I knew about sharks in Tampa Bay. A lot of passenger ships and ships that come in there, dump their, their refuse, their garbage, and a lot of food in their garbage. And the sharks just, are there that they've got free food just coming out of those ships all the time. So uh, they don't even have to hunt for it. It just comes <laughs> floating down to them. So I wasn't real thrilled about the idea. Uh, but about that time, 
Hart's pointing out he's out that way, and again, he's up on one elbow, and he can see the water. Uh, I mean, he can, he's looking out towards the water, and this, uh, we hear the splashing noise, and I looked down, and this, I, all I saw was it looked like a board coming up out of the water, and it was a hammerhead shark, and, you know, you always exaggerate these things. I'm going to cut it in like a third and say it had a hammer, this hammer-type head, like a board at the front end of the shark. It's got to be at least three feet wide. And it's got big eyeballs, like about the size of 50 set pieces at each end of it. And it and it rolls up with one of those eyeballs looking up at us. And then it went back down, and the rest of its body kind of came up and went down. The thing had to be 10 to 12 feet long. Well, I wasn't going in the water with that thing there. I think about it. But Gary was bleeding profusely from his head, and I think from a wound somewhere on his body. Uh, McCord's toe had to bleed like like crazy because it's real vascular down there. You've got a lot of veins going into your feet, you know, to keep them. I think you touched on that last week, but clarify to everybody out there the injury that, that you saw on Austin Idol. Well, it would be like somebody took a, a sharp, uh, small ice cream scoop, shark, and just gouged out about three quarters of his big toe, the bottom, mm-hmm. the bottom of his big toe. Yeah. I mean, it was just a big hole there. Yeah, that's, I mean, yeah. it did go all the way through. I mean, it, it, there was you could see, but I mean, it was it still bleeding. Right. You know, it had to bleed like so. Those guys left a trail of blood uh, behind them while they were swimming, straying. Well, however they got back there, mm-hmm. and they're there in the water. And I mean, I'm not saying I saved them, but I know that that shark was there within a minute after I got there. And if they'd been in the water, I can't imagine it wasn't going to try to get a meal out of somebody. Right. Uh, I mean. McCord bleeding, Gary Hart bleeding. But, you know, I talked to Gary, and my understanding is his own version of it, that he was had all kinds of broken things. Uh, well, if I, they I, did, know, I, I know he had some injuries. He said he didn't realize he had them until after this was all over with. Uh, obviously, there's a lot of adrenaline and other things going on at this point, I'd have to think. But, um, yeah, I mean, I know he had he did suffer some some back injuries because he he never walked the same again. He couldn't take a bump anymore, not a real bump anyway. So there were some injuries there for certain, but, you know, his main thing, and I don't want to say this like the other injury, like a back injury isn't worse, but the main thing that was noticeable that you talked about that Gary mentioned too was he was lacerated everywhere on his head. He said his nose, uh, the tip of his nose was, you know, kind of sliced open, but I I guess it took like over 200 stitches to close him up because he had so many different lacerations because he was actually ejected, thrown from the plane because he said as soon as he heard Austin Idol say we're going to crash, he unbuckled. So when the plane crashed, Gary was the one that got tossed from the plane. Like Austin Idol, he he was stuck in there, and he was stuck in his seatbelt, and he had to like force himself out of his seatbelt. And when he did that, I guess the front end of the plane had smashed down, and the rudders, that's what uh, you talked about, Buddy Colt's ankle or his foot or whatever. It was the rudders that, that got wrapped around it and smashed into Austin Idol's ankles and Buddy Colt's ankles. So that's kind of where Austin wiggled his out of his cowboy boots, he says, and got his, you know, his foot torn his toe torn and that's how buddy colt got the uh you know the injury to his ankle as well was when they were trying to get out of the plane but gary hart you know by all accounts from everybody involved he was thrown from the plane well that's interesting because i i I heard a different version okay i heard i heard the version was that when buddy uh came out of the fog and was preparing to land uh he saw that he was too high so instead of landing he you know, he might have even gotten down uh, much lower and close to the runway, 
And then, you know, so now he sees he's halfway down it. He hadn't touched down yet that he's going to run out of runway. So he uh, puts the gas pedal down and, and, and takes off again. Right. And my, my understanding was that when, when he circled around to come yeah. back for a second try, he was deliberately keeping the plane low because that way, you know, he wouldn't right. have to make that descent. Yeah. He could come, come in and he could, he was, he could see the, the runway much, you know, much better. He could come in and be much closer to it. Right. But his mistake was that when he turned to circle back, when you turn and where you're, you know, you're say at a 45 degree angle, uh, your wings lose lift. I mean, what keeps the plane uh, aloft is wind under the wings, and on, on top of them too. The one, the one that goes over the top has a suction effect of pulling up, and the wind that goes underneath has an uplifting effect. So when he turned, you know, he should have taken a big, wide turn where he didn't actually bank his wings at all. He kept them level, especially when you're 100 feet off the off the water. But he turned, and when he did, he lost lift. And when he lost lift, the plane just fell into the bay. Mm -hmm. And my understanding was that it fell in upside down. And Gary hurt his head so bad by falling through the top of the plane. Uh, he said, yeah, he said he went through the plane. I mean, I, I, I'm just going off of what I wasn't there. I can only go off of what they right. said. I've seen Gary say that he was thrown from the plane. I've seen Austin Idol say it, but Idol didn't find He didn't see where any of these guys went. He, he found these guys after the crash. So obviously nobody even realized Bobby Shane was still in the plane until after the fact. So it's not like Austin saw it. So maybe he's going off of what Gary said or whatever, too. But uh, according to Gary, he was thrown from the plane. I mean, he didn't make it you know, like a big, big deal or anything like that. So it just sounded like, you know, that was uh, potentially what happened there. I think the only two doors were up front. So I don't know how he'd be thrown. Well, I, you know, it's just story. That's the thing uh, with Rustros. It's your story. You can tell it any way you want to. Um, I just know what I heard at the time. Right. Uh, was that the time the plane basically fell into the bay? The buddy turned too sharp, and the, the wings lost their lift, and the plane fell out of the sky. Well, and God bless Gary Hart, you know, and he he's you know he's gone now. And and again, I, I'm not trying to attack him at all because uh, you know, great mind, uh, gr great for the business and all that good stuff. But you know, there's a part of this story too where he's kind of like I don't know if you've ever watched the movie Forrest Gump. Where they're they're at war there, and Forrest keeps running back in and pulling another man out, going back in and pulling another man out. You know, <laughs> and that's kind of how Gary tells the story here too. Is he he got Austin Idol, he pedaled him to to the to the wall, then he went back and got Buddy Colt and took him to the wall. Then he kind of went back and he searched for Bobby Shane, but he couldn't find him, so he finally gave up. And it, that seemed a little bit much, I thought, you know. And I don't think Austin Idol tells the story exactly that way either. Though Idol did admit of out of everybody, you know, that that made it out of there that, that Gary Hart probably was the most capable of actually, you know, getting around on his feet because, you know, Idol had the, the foot rip, but his ankles were also injured. And then Buddy Cole, obviously you've, you've talked about that on the last episode, his, uh, well, you talked about it a couple of times now, his leg injury, his ankle injury. Well, there's another factor involved. Gary still had a sport coat. You know, he's wore a sport coat or a suit coat. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. He's had, a, he had, a, still had a, I don't know why he still had his coat on when he showed up at the wall. When I pulled him out, he still had his coat on. So I don't know why he didn't take it off, you know, because, you know, he's he trying not to drown. Another factor, and again, it's Gary's story. God bless Gary. Rest in peace, Gary. Uh, you know, I was one of his, uh, Gary Hart's army. I was one of the army, and I, right. I like Gary because Gary, Gary knew, knew the office hold. You know, he was smart to the business, so I could talk to him 
uh, you know, he was educational. You know, he could he could give me tips and things. Right. So I and I admired it. You know, I admired him as a manager. I thought he was really good. So I would go see him when he was when he was hurt. I you know I went to see him at his house, and all I remember is he came to the door. Uh, in fact, he got he got paranoid. Uh, he had an emotional reaction to the stress. Uh, he got PTSD really bad immediately, and he had a reaction to it. Though where uh, by three days after the crash, he had a Thompson submachine gun sitting on a, a little table right yeah, behind his front door. I remember you saying that, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I I knocked on his door. I come over to see how he's doing. I knocked on his door one day, and he came and you know I heard about three locks un- unlocking. Um, he opened it up and I walked in and he had that machine gun ac- across the, uh, uh, on the table and I asked him what that was for. And he had some idea that the office was out to get him. Could and again, medication I, maybe too though, huh? Could have been, it could have been the PTSD. You oh, get, I th- yeah. I, I, I was including that as well. Yeah. Yeah. Certainly. Uh, that kind of stress can create all kinds. And yeah, so you add a good call on the medication too. That could have added to it because. He seemed very, you know, just totally unreasonable. The office didn't have any desire to get him. Right. He thought they were mad at him because, uh, you know, they couldn't, Shane gone completely, Hart basically gone, and he can't come to work anytime soon. Uh, Buddy Colt gone. You know, I you, you crippled the heel side of the, uh, of the promotion. Right. And so uh, he was convinced the office was mad at him, was going to get him somehow. That's what the gun was for. You know, and how do you talk to someone who's, who's thinking like that? Right. Uh, you know, you can't be, tell them all day long. It's, well, I don't know what you could possibly be thinking about, Gary. I don't think that's the case. But when people want to believe what they think they believe, that's what they're going to do. I wanted to go through some more of this uh, with you. Okay. Because you know, the version you tell is nowhere near the version that Gary Hart tells. And so I'm not calling Gary Hart a liar, and I'm certainly not calling you a liar, Bob, because the way you tell this is very matter of fact, very, you know, you, you seem to tell a total recall here, uh, you know, the situation as anybody should be able to remember these things. I'm, I'm totally on board with what's going on here. You know, you've talked about that wall, that uh, seawall, the seawall. Sorry, I yeah. don't live. <laughs> I don't live on a coast. Uh, so you talked no, about that's, the sea. That's fine. You talked about the seawall. And them not being able to get it. And that's where, you know, I'm really, this is where now the little things, the injuries and stuff, no big deal. People remember things differently. Maybe, maybe you can embellish that a little bit when you're telling a good story. And I'm, again, I'm not making light of their injuries. These, this was very serious. Bobby Shane died in this crash, but I'm just saying some of the things that Gary Hart say here, Austin Idol even said, oh, I wasn't that messed up, darling, but you know, I did have this going on. But I want to go back to this just real quick, because this is where the the big difference lays in this whole thing. And that's what I wanted to flush out is Gary Hart says that they, you know, as you talked about them going towards the seawall, it was because they saw a light. So they kind of knew which way to swim and they kind of swam their way over there. And this is where the story really differs, because Gary Hart says he pulled himself out of the water onto a dock. Maybe the dock you're referring to that's, you know, 50 yards, 50 feet away, whatever you said it was. And. He said that he saw a house and he went to the house. And this is funny because you said he was in his suit jacket still. Gary Hart swears he was buck naked as he went to this person's house. (laughs) And he banged on their door until they said they were going to call the cops. So he banged more because that's what he wanted him to do was call the police. Then he went back and kind of slumped under a tree and just yelled to the other guys that help was on the way. And that's how he remembered it. But the next thing he says is the first person he sees after that is your girlfriend. So clearly, you know, if you guys are there. 
maybe there's you know a little more to this, but Austin Idol has even went back, and I don't know if he's just going along with Gary's story or whatever, but he too talks about Gary getting out of the water first. So, but you say, you know, hey, we were there, and, and, and even Gary Hart puts your girlfriend there, which I guess would put you there. So uh, it's just really weird that I get somebody trying to play the hero, or maybe they do remember things a little differently or whatever, but it's such a drastic difference. I pulled him out of the water versus Gary Hart pulled himself out of the water and then, you know, basically saved the, the day. So that's where I wanted, you know, I wanted to get into that a little bit here. So I'm, I'm happy, you know, that you, you broke it down the way you remembered it, the way, you know, how he's probably the way it was. I'm going to have to say you helped Gary out. You talked about the injuries, Austin Idol, obviously you said he helped himself out a little bit there because he wasn't injured in the upper body department. And then uh, obviously buddy cold out and he suffered his injuries as well. So I just wanted to touch on that. And then I have like two other things here. I wanted to, to run by you and, and get your take. Okay, let me rebut a little. Yeah. Uh, when Gary was, uh, after he knocked on the door and got the cops on the way, and he slumped down under a bush or whatever, where were, <laughs> where were Colt and uh, McCord? I guess they, the rest, they were resting at the dock, I guess, in the water. Yes, that's Gary's, because he couldn't pull them out or, or whatever. Or maybe maybe he did pull them out and put him on the dock. I don't remember no, that no, part no. of the book, but I'm, I, I, I'm just, I, I don't remember exactly what, I just remember him saying that, he banged on the door. He was butt naked. They said they were calling the police, which is what he wanted. Then he went and slumped under a tree and he yelled to the, well, he told the guys that, you know, help was on the way. And that's the last thing he remembered until he saw your girlfriend. Well, when Debbie, my girlfriend came uh, driving up, the reason she was driving so fast was because she had seen him at the dock. I mean, at the seawall. Okay. Not the dock, at the seawall and couldn't get out. That's why she was in such a hurry. She was worried they were going to drown. That's why we tore back over there. And I never did see a, 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 another adult there, like some of the homeowner or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, you would think that if the police did come, and I don't remember, I'm sure the amnesties came. I don't remember that part. Maybe once somebody got there, I just went ahead and left because there wasn't much I could do. I mean, Gary was, he wasn't, you know, his head was busted open, but, and McCord had the toe, Buddy's right. ankle. There was no way to, his ankle wasn't like twisted sideways or anything. It wasn't yeah. dislocated or, you know, you couldn't tell how bad it was. The bad injury to his uh, ankle was done by the doctor who, who tried to, to prepare it. He cut it open and, and Barry got a terrible infection and got gangrene. That's what happened to his ankle. It wasn't from the, the initial injury. Right. I remember you talking uh, about that last episode. Yeah. I, you know, and I, I don't want to, what I said earlier about Gary's frame of mind uh, about thinking that the office was out to get him and everything. Let's extrapolate on that about what the actual shock of you're sitting in a plane, getting ready to land, all of a sudden you go through the top of the plane, you're in the water, and you have to you know, immediately uh, save your own life, regardless of whether you're thinking about anybody else or not, and trying to get out of there. I'm sure they had to be thinking about sharks too. I mean, here it is, night. Uh, you're splashing, you're bleeding, uh, you're making all kinds of noise like a wounded fish. I'm sure that was all on his mind. And then uh, once he saw that big shark, when he saw that big shark, he let out a scream. I'm telling you, he screamed like a, a woman who, you know, was being attacked or something. Right. You know, and, that's another and, funny thing, because he specifically says in his book that there's a lot of lore about sharks being in the water at that point in time. But he said there wasn't any sharks in the water at that time. Which I kind of find hard to believe. I, there's just sharks in the water anyway out in that Tampa Bay area, at least back in those days from things I've read. It, 
and whatnot. But uh, I mean, the two things you don't do in the water, you know, is bleed and uh, kick, flail your feet. You know, <laughs> that's uh, yes. that's going to attract the sharks for certain. And especially both at the same time. Yeah. Right. That's what uh, I meant. <laughs> yeah. Well, the report I got from the, I talked to the uh, Air Sea Rescue people, and there were so many sharks around the plane, they couldn't go down to get to get uh, Shane's body oh. uh, until uh, daylight. Oh, uh, wow. So, yeah, because it was, uh, it's one thing, I mean, sharks are tolerable if you can see them. And also, they wanted to let, uh, any lingering trace of the blood in the water to get out of there where the sharks would not have anything to, because my understanding was Shane wasn't bleeding. But, um, you know, why don't we go with, it's his story, you can tell it any way he wants to, and that goes for me too. I do That's remember it that way, and I mean, I do remember pulling all four of those, or all three of those guys out of the water, and I was, because I was shocked at, at what when I first saw Gary, uh, his head, I could see his head was cut up. I said a few minutes ago about going to see Gary in his apartment. Mm-hmm. Well, he came to the door and answered the door. Like, I mean, if he's got a busted knee, a hip, and back, and all that. And again, perhaps some of these injuries come on or came on later. I don't want to diss Gary because, you know, like I said before, I respected him. I like Yeah, you've him. done nothing but put Gary over here as far as, you know, being good for the business. And you, you kind of hung out with him a little bit here and there outside of. The business as well, nothing crazy, but you said, you know, you would go over to his apartment or whatnot, which is not something you did with too many of the guys. So, no. yeah, so you've, well, you've done nothing the- but say good things about Gary Hart. And it's not like Gary Hart says anything negative about you in the story. It's just, well, you're kind of omitted, although your your girlfriend was there, <laughs> right? So that's kind of weird, yeah, yeah. but uh, you got to yeah. figure. <laughs> yeah, well, so, you know, uh, <laughs> yeah, Gary, Gary's a good guy. And again, he can tell a story any way he wants to. Let's uh, let's let's talk about the injuries real quick here, and then uh, we'll go and we'll discuss anything else you want to about this or anything else here before we close up the show. But I just wanted to verify, re-verify to everybody everything that happened here in this plane crash. Now, obviously, the obvious one is Bobby Shane passes away. Story goes again, at least according to Gary Hart's book, because he felt terrible about the whole thing himself as well. Uh, that they some of the boys or whomever, maybe Eddie Graham, I'm not sure who it was. Uh, they actually went and got a coroner report to show to Gary Hart so we'd stop feeling terrible that, you know, there was nothing else that they could do to help. According to him, there was very little uh, actual water in the lungs of Bobby Shane that it was like blunt force trauma almost when they crashed into the water. He was basically dead on arrival, so he didn't really drown, like uh, consciously drown. Uh, at least that, you know, that's what Gary printed in his book. But we do know one thing. Uh, Bobby Shane's you know, sadly passed away in this situation. Uh, we know Buddy Colt uh, never was able to wrestle. Well, he tried to wrestle a couple times after this, but he was never the same again, to say the least. His ankle, all sorts of issues. You say, you know, it was from the surgery. The the, the doctor screwed it up even worse than it actually was. Perhaps it could have right. been, you know, repaired properly, but it was done yes. incorrectly. And like you said last week, hopefully Buddy got some money out of that. Obviously, uh, Austin Idol, he was down for a while. Now, you talked about, you know, having the bottom of uh, his toe and things ripped up. Gary Hart went a little further, said both of his feet, the bottoms were ripped off. Austin said, no, it wasn't that bad. But, you know, I did. he did lose, you know, basically, like you said, quite a bit. And you think about, well, toe's not that big, but it, it was a big giant hole in the bottom of his foot, guys. And uh, But also, Austin did suffer some ankle injuries, uh, verified, and it kept him out of action for like six months. And, he, wow. you know, he, he came back and he tried to work a little bit and he was, you know, he missed a lot of the next year. 
But it wasn't too long after that that he developed the Austin Idol persona, so it kind of worked out for him in the long run. And then, of course, um, there's Gary Hart. He uh, never walked the same again. I'll, I'll say that much. I've, he, you know, he talks about having, uh, I don't know about a broken back, but certainly a, a, some injuries to the back area. But obviously the main thing was, you know, all the lacerations. The, he claims, you know, it went all the way, he could feel his skull or, or whatever, how he was busted wide open. It's possible. Uh, certainly <laughs> crashing a plane upside down into a, an ocean, that'll do it to you. Th- those are basically the, the uh, injury situations. You talked about Buddy Colt's ankle, check. Bobby Shane, we know, passed away, check. Gary Hart, you say, you know, you can't really see the other injury, so, well, you know, you don't know, but obviously he was lacerated, check. And then I just wanted to verify also, you talked about Austin Idol having the foot ripped, uh, but also, you know, he suffered some ankle, serious ankle injuries, I guess, in that crash as well. But that was because of trying to get out of there, getting it, you know, getting his uh, legs smashed underneath some uh, debris, I guess. But uh, that's where we're at, guys. And um, you've heard the story for many years. Gary Hart saved the, you know, saved the day. And Austin Idols, t- you know, told his version of the story as well, which it's not really anything crazy. Uh, now we get Bob Roop's version, who was there. I mean, it's basically verified in Gary's book without actually saying your name, everything but saying your name. So, uh, Bob, you were there in some way, shape or form, no doubt. Well, again, I've got a question. Uh, uh, again, mm-hmm. <laughs> whoever's telling, now think about all the different versions. Rusters right. love to tell stories. Now, you just talked a while ago about Flair uh, giving a blow by blow description of me and Slater. Yeah. And he wasn't within 50 miles of the place, you know? And <laughs> so, Rusters do that. So, the amount of, amount of things that got told about that plane crash. I'm sure every wrestler on the card wanted to have some kind of story about sure. it. Sure, I've even read and, Gor- Gordon Soley's version of this. So there's quite right. a few few different stories out there, right? Right. So who knows who is correct or not? All I can talk about is what I saw, what I saw, and my and what I remember. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, I've been examining my own memory here and thinking, well, is there any way you could have embellished that? It's not a glorious story. But there's a guy dead as a in part of the story. I'm not real thrilled about that. They have to even talk about that. I couldn't even, you know, go out there and try to see if the guy was still alive. Uh, I'm not real proud of that. But there's, you know, there's some holes and stuff. You know, if this this homeowner, you'd think by the time that the time that the cops got there, that he would be out there to see what was going on. And I don't remember ever seeing anybody from those homes. Yeah, but again, any story worth telling is worth embellishing. <laughs> and by the by the way that to, that they've been, including with me, I guess. Again, I, it's like I'm not the hero of the story at all. Of my story, uh, I was glad to be able to help. Uh, maybe if I hadn't, maybe Murdoch would have been there to do it. Maybe they wouldn't have been attacked by a shark. Yeah, yeah. Gary Gary does mention Dick Murdoch showing up, but I guess it was after the fact. Dickie got there after the ambulances got there because I guess Murdoch arrived, according to Hart, anyway as the ambulance was getting ready to put Gary on there and Murdoch actually went to the hospital with Gary from there. So Murdoch a little, little late getting there, but uh, yeah, he wasn't, he was around there as well at the time. Well, he would have had to walk over there because uh, when my girlfriend came up and yelled to get in, I got in mm-hmm. and I, she said, go back over there the way I came. Uh, there's guys in the water. Yeah. I didn't, I wasn't, I don't know if I was, I don't think I was still there when, uh, when Murdoch got there. I don't remember much after the uh, the ambulance sure, no. people getting there. Yeah, yeah, I, I, so, I get that. But yeah, I just well, you know, it, the details here. You're shining a spotlight in the water. It seems like it's you know actual fact here. So I'm not questioning you at all, Bob. I buy your story more than the other one, and I'm not trying to knock anybody either. I you know I wasn't there. I have no idea. 
I can only, you know, listen to, you know, the versions of the stories that are out there and uh, go with what I believe. Yours seems very plausible. So I'll leave it at that. Some of these other ones sound like a movie. <laughs> but, well, um, again, I, it's not, oh, look at me, look at me. Because, you know, again, we're talking about somebody dying that I couldn't even go out and try to help. You know, I was sorry as, I was sorry as hell it happened. You know, it was a tragedy for uh, not just for Shane, but those other guys, too. Uh, of course, much worse for him, but uh, for Bobby. But so, again, what really happened <laughs> down to the absolute details from the time that Buddy Colt went to turn around to turn, bring the plane back around. Again, I heard it fell, just fell out of the sky. Gary Hart went through the top of the plane because mm-hmm. he had unfastened his seatbelt. Okay. Also heard that Bobby Shane, when the, the and I got this from the one of the, uh, the rescue guys, and again, this might have been third hand, where it was BS, but that Bobby was found. He had his hands under his uh, seatbelt, uh, okay. t- like trying to get it loose. Oh. Now, it could have been. He was trying to get it loose when the plane hit, and he was then when he was knocked out, there was never any talk about massive head injury on him or, or anything. That could have been. But, again, what actually happened in finite detail, uh, I don't think we got to that tonight. Uh, well, but I'd, I'd, I'd got, expect to get you know the, the entire story here, but I certainly think you opened up a whole new can of worms for people to kind of process and uh, let the listeners decide you know what they want to believe. But... And in you, we, when we talked about this originally off air, you were you like you were not trying to play the hero when you were talking to me about it. You, you know, it was kind of a somber situation. You were just like, yeah. "Yeah, man, I was I was there, and I had to like pull try to help him pull out." And I was like, "What?" In my mind, I didn't say this to you at the time, but I'm like, "Whoa, whoa, wait, wait a minute," because that is not what is in Gary Hart's book. I knew I didn't say that to you, but that's what I was thinking. So it was like a whole new like, "Wow, we got to we got to get this on air," because you know I wanted to hear your version of what went down because it sounded so real as opposed to some of the other stuff that's out there. So, um, no, I just, I appreciate you, you know, offering to talk about it here because, you know, that's a situation that maybe not everybody wants to revisit whether no matter what side of, of it that they're on, you know, it's kind of hard to process. Even if you weren't one of the guys in the water, you know, just being a part of that, that, you know, that can kind of screw up your psyche from any end. So, it's, well, yeah. Uh, and you know, the, the add something else too. It doesn't happen a lot, but you know, the wrestling business, has this dangers to it, you know, and people, there's been a bunch of guys killed on the road in car wrecks mm-hmm. and, you know, and here's one from a plane crash. So, and, and there was another plane crash that paralyzed, uh, Johnny Valentine. Right. And, you know, so, uh, there's dangers. There were dangers in pro wrestling. I guess there maybe isn't in any profession, but I don't know if you're working, you know, you're working in, a, in an office, uh, you know, as an accountant or something. I don't know if you have the same kind of dangers that you'd have to do when you're out in the public, you're out on the road all the time, or you're traveling all the time. I talked about being in Japan and being on a bus, a train, a plane, and a boat, uh, and and (laughs) multiple buses all on the same same day. Well, your your chances of some kind of accident kind of... Sure, certainly higher. (laughs) Yeah, they kind of multiply, don't they? you got to hide that from your life insurance, I'll tell you that much anyway. (laughs) Oh, man. No, you know, really, honestly, at the end of the day, you know, I want people to make up their own minds and and believe what they want to believe out of all of this. But I wanted to put that out there. That version, as far as I know, unless you've told it somewhere else, is not out there. So 
I'm just happy we were able to do that because now it just it opens people up to a whole new you know world of things to process and think about in this situation. So it, I just thought it was a great idea to just, like I said, get it out there. So we have Gary Hart's version. There's other versions as well. And now there's the Bob Root version. And you, you obviously were there. So I, I just appreciate you wanting to talk about it here. Well, thanks. I mean, uh, I'm glad to set, I don't want to say set the record state. I wouldn't. I mean, uh, I got enough stories about things that, that happened. <laughs> I don't need to make up any. Right. Oh my yeah. God. Yeah. I, uh, yeah. <laughs> The stuff I'm talking about, I mean, uh, this stuff happened, uh, and I wasn't, I never did psychedelics like LSD or anything, so the magic mushrooms is as far as I got, and those weren't. Thank you, Chris Colt. Yeah, yeah, good old, good old Chris. Oh, that's another thing, I've been reading, I was telling you earlier in private, I've been reading the book about Don Fargo called The Hard Way. Yeah. Uh, Great, great book, folks. Crowbar Press again. Uh, you can order a great book about uh, Don Fargo, a really, really crazy guy. That, yeah. uh, <laughs> That's putting uh, it mildly. <laughs> oh, I don't yeah. know if they invented a word that describes Don Fargo, to be honest with you. One of the things I read, Ray, was that he he and Chris for Crooks Colt were partners for a yeah, while. Yeah, they were a tag team, yeah. Yeah, yeah, they were yeah. a tag team. Wow. Well, I, I think I, I think I said that in passing on the episode. Well, oh, I think you did. Yeah, yeah that's so, right. Can you imagine them yeah. two as a tag team? I knew of their past together. That's why I was trying to just imagine, envision a night out with Don Fargo and Chris Colt. My God, holy cow, that had to be something. I don't know that you could put two more in, uh, crazier guys together. Oh. There's a one fact there, and I don't know if he did it for his whole career, but there were times in during, I mean, for years in his career. That the whole time they were on the road, he uh, he and Jackie Fargo, for example, were both naked. I'm talking bare naked. Right. While they were driving down the road. I mean, I read that. I went, what? And I thought, <laughs> how, did, how could you possibly get away with that? Then I thought, wait a minute. Even back then, I'm sure they had some drive-throughs. Because, I mean, how do you go out? What, do you get out and go into a 7-Eleven? Perhaps naked? I don't think you do it more than well, once. I don't, I don't know. They, they they don't make them like that no more, though, Bob. <laughs> but but if you think back, yeah, if you think back, back in those days, you could get a gas, uh, there were gas station attendants. Right. They came and pump the gas for you. They come and pump the gas, so you didn't have to get out of the car. But I know they always had a case of beer, at least a case of beer, in the car, and they might have bought food. I don't know if they ate that much food, but if they did, they probably had some with them. But oh my God, what a story! Uh, I'm talking, you know. Yeah, that's a great I book. Look, I read that when what? it first came out, so it's been a long time. I probably need to go back and read that again. Oh, I'm telling you, I, I it was so far removed from my own, uh, you know, the kind of life I led. I could, I, I could see, just imagine trying to do like one tenth of the stuff he did, yeah. uh, and have <laughs> have anybody from my family, my father, my mother, or anybody, hey. Yeah, we picked up your son. He was driving by a church naked. He said he was on a, he was on his way to a wrestling show. Will you come bail him out? My dad would have said no. I don't I don't have a son named Robert Roop. No. <laughs> but uh, yeah, that, it's good stuff. You know, I mean, no harm was done. Don went to jail. I mean, on a regular basis. Uh, yeah, I <laughs> Imagine think that. that. <laughs> Just isn't that hard to hard to believe. Yeah. yeah, he he was he was having to be bailed out on just a regular basis. So yeah, but what a what a character, you know. Go, right. 
So you had to, you had your basically boring old stuff like me, and then you had guys like Don who uh, made the business a lot more interesting. <laughs> to say the least. Yeah. Oh, man. Well, we got a couple of really uh, big time stories out here this week. Uh, you know, that Dick Slater story has been around forever and it's, you know, told it's, you know, many different ways by many different people. But I've also heard, you know, the version where you said today, that's really not uh, too far fetched. And then, of course, the, the plane crash, one of the two big plane crashes of the 1970s. You talked about the other one, too, with Johnny Valentine, Ric Flair and company. Yeah, that that's uh that's gonna do it here this week, Bob. Unless you got anything else you want to add, man. We we really covered some uh some big stuff here on this episode. No, I I'm I'm all set, Ray. I just want to thank you again for your research. You know, you set me up for these. Uh, I mean, you prepare me uh, and set me up very well uh, leading into these questions for me to answer if in case I my memory needs to be stroked. You certainly do it, and I you open the door for a lot of things, and I. I really appreciate that. Well, you, you want to tell things completely and that, you know, that's kind of my job. Yep. I'm not just a host of a show. I'm not just a producer here, guys. I'm not just editing, you know, and uh, talking with Bob. I try to do as much research as I can about everything. So that way, if, you know, if we go sideways, if it's like, well, wait a minute, it, it, this can't be this way. Maybe, you know, maybe we can d discuss it. And you're like, oh yeah, you're right because of this. So of course. I, I, that's, you know, that's the entire idea here is to tell everything completely and accurately. And I'm sure people are going, well, is this really accurate? Well, that's the way Bob remembers it. And I'm not saying that in a negative way at all. You can only remember what you can remember. But honestly, man, I am blown away with some of the things you say. I fact check. I fact check as I go back through and I edit. And I'm like, wow, that, that had to be. Those were the three guys that were there at that point in time in the, in the territory. So, I mean, your memories are amazing as they are. So I certainly trust the things that are coming out of your mouth. Uh, well, well, I'll, leave, I'll you. leave it there. Well, I, I want to just add, like, for example, when you, uh, your research pointed out that Alexei Smirnoff, Michelle Dubois, mm -hmm. was probably the source of the ukulele angle rather than me, uh, although I've implemented it. He was the one that probably came up with it. Mm -hmm. I had forgotten, if I ever knew that, I'd forgotten it. I, I did know it, I guess, but I'd forgotten it because, you know, 40 years or whatever gone by. So, I mean, I appreciate that because <laughs> I don't want to, I don't want to. <laughs> Wait a minute! I'm trying to I'm trying to pare it down. Give me a break here. But uh, no, I I I want it to be accurate because if it isn't, a person can never tell a lie in their entire life until say the last day of their life they tell a lie, and you know when they die, you know what they are? They're a liar. Yeah, they're a liar. So so now you don't know what to believe. You know? Yeah. Well. You found out in a lie, it, sh it puts you doubt on everything they told you over 50 years or whatever. So, no, I don't want to have any inaccuracies here. Uh, I was going to say it earlier. Uh, yeah, there are some things about selective memory. There's some things about what was from the horse's mouth or what was from the other end of the horse uh, in terms of what you're reporting. And that's always a possibility. But I will tell everybody out there uh, that what I'm telling uh, with my stories is to the best of my knowledge and my belief, mm -hmm. because for that very same token. Now, me being an Olympian, that's on record. There's no way to, you know, me being a veteran, all these other things are on record. But as far as stories and things that I experienced and my reaction to them, those come from me personally. And if any, if I come across in any way as being du duplicitous or untruthful, then it, it should put, it puts, 
a doubt on everything I say, right. and I'm not going to do that. Yeah, you know, well, I'll go bend over backwards, and boy, if I'm wrong about something, then I can find out. Anybody out there, if you hear something that you feel and you know I'm inaccurate, please write us. Yeah, because let us know. yeah, let us know because I want to address it. I want to know what the facts are too. Right. Sometimes and then inaccuracy might come just from lack of knowledge. You don't know all the details. Right. So there was an important part that if you knew two more details, you would have known, but you don't. So uh, we're doing the best we can. <laughs> you don't need, a lot of stuff about Don Fargo, you don't need to embellish anything no, about Don no, Fargo. No. <laughs> <laughs> really so not. anyway, soapbox, but, uh, well, I'll put the soapbox away, uh, right? You're fine. You know, <laughs> obviously this show is about Bob Roop. It's in the title, but also in the title is The Wrestling Stoop. And that's really what this show is truly all about. It's just kind of sitting under the learning tree with you, Bob. And, it, you know, the stories here, a lot of firsthand, but also you just talk about things and why they may have been this way. And, and, you know, some of the, your other comrades throughout the times of professional wrestling, maybe you heard a third-hand story, but, you know, it was so good, you you have to tell it here. Like a Don Fargo story, which you can kind of believe. So, I mean, it's, oh, you know, yeah. There's, yeah. No, there's no really questioning uh, things like that. But, no, it's we've I've learned so much, so I'm sure so many other people out there have as well. And we're just getting started, man. We've got so much That's more right. to go. And I think next oh, yeah. time, you know, people, I've had a lot of people ask me over the last couple of weeks, are you getting back to telling the story? in order. And I'm not saying people want us to just keep going down that road where we just telling your, your career in order and the people you, you came into contact with in order, but it's nice to every once in a while, go back and keep telling that story from the beginning. We talked about 69. We talked about 1970, your first trip to Japan. Boy, that was a fun show. So maybe next time, and I'm not giving you, don't, don't hold me to this guys, but maybe next time we'll kind of look at some of the stuff you did in 1971, just to, you know, the really old school fans out there, keep them happy. And I'll try to come up with a couple of questions as well. That may be a little more modern. And I will put this out there, Bob. I want to let you guys, I want to let you know and let everybody out there know that uh, there's a couple of people helping me out with some research. I'll, I'll, I'll throw his name next week here on the show because I want to talk about it a little more, but um, there are a couple of people, uh, one specifically who actually used to take very detailed notes of everything that he watched on television back in your entire run throughout the mid South era. He actually started writing wow. notes, every, every result, uh, every, you know, uh, angle, every turn, every, everything on every episode of Mid-South TV, going back to the fall of 1980 and all the way through your entire run there, all the way through 81 and, and, and all the way through 82. So I basically have your entire career, at least the television version, plus all the, the show results that are out there of your entire run in the Mid-South wrestling territory from your time entering as a baby face, your abrupt turn to heel and man. He lays it out. He paints a picture. This guy that I'm talking, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put him over next week on the show, but he paints a picture of your heel turn that is just masterclass, the booking and the delivery. So I'm looking forward to getting to that. So maybe not too far down the road, we're going to break down your entire run in the Mid-South Territory working for Bill Watts, too. That sounds great. Yeah, I'm going to have to make sure you get that information to me. I was just thinking about uh, what you said earlier about looking back at things. Mm -hmm. uh, or going back, I thought that you're talking about 1971. I thought about going to the that uh, that great website that has wrestling all the wrestling data, wrestling data and yes. looking at looking at my matches uh, through uh, 1971 and see if any of them stand out. You know, I mean, well, if I be. yeah, it would be if you know something something different pops happened in my head. Oh, I remember that yeah. in Tampa. Yeah, I remember yeah. that. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I, yeah, that would be cool. Very yeah, cool. I'll do that. 
Yeah. Sounds like a good so, time. All right, guys. Yeah, so yeah. next next time around, we'll head back to 1971. Maybe I'll pop a couple other questions on Bob throughout the show as well. So you guys got that to look forward to. But this week, we're going to wrap things up. A couple of big stories out of the way now, Bob, as we continue on. All right, Bob, I just uh, you know want to tell you I appreciate you as always. I'm glad we got these stories out there. These are some big stories, especially that plane crash. Obviously, obviously a huge story in the world of professional wrestling. Someone right. you know lost their life in that. Unfortunately, it was Bobby yeah. Shane, who at the time was one of the top heels in the, the entire business. So oh, you know, yeah. it's kind of unfortunate. That it's not kind of unfortunate. It's very unfortunate that, that you know yeah, that the is. entire situation happened. But it was good that you were there. It was good to you know that the other three were thankful that you know they made it out of there okay and they they went on to live you know lives long after that. Gary Hart passed away sadly, kind of young. I thought. Yeah, he was. Austin Idol still out there, Buddy Colt. You know he he uh you know did some things afterwards. I do believe outside of the wrestling business as well. So he lived a pretty good life, I think. Unfortunately, yeah. you know, you know, it was just a situation that, like you said, man, when you're on the plane all the time or in the car all the time, it's, you know, more liable to happen, especially when you have, uh, you know, somebody that maybe isn't fully licensed as a pilot in there. But we won't get into that, Bob. But I just wanted to tell you, I really appreciate, you know, getting that story out there. I really do. Well, I do, too, Ray. And I thank you for framing the show in such a way that we could do that in, a, in a, what I feel is like a very intelligible uh, manner. So thanks, my friend. All right, that'll do it, guys. We're going to wrap it up here. So I want to thank you, Bob, for joining the show. Of course, it's your show, so why wouldn't you? But we will be back again next week, guys, for another edition of the Wrestling Stoop. Thank you once again, Bob. All right, Ray. Thank you, my friend. And all right, guys, as we finish up here this week, going to be back next week, going to talk a little bit more about Bob's early career in the Florida Territory, head back to 1971, take a look at some of the wrestlers, some of the stars that were there during that time period. No doubt Bob's going to have some fun stories to share. But for now, we're going to wrap things up here. Reminder that you guys can find Bob, follow Bob, friend Bob, over at Facebook.com slash PoorBobRoop. No doubt he's looking forward to hearing from you. And, of course, you guys can follow me, Ray Russell, on X, formerly Twitter, and Wrestling Grenade. That's at R-A-S-S-L-I-N Grenade. Also, follow and like me, Facebook.com slash Wrestling Grenade. And, hey, guys, don't forget to try Patreon.com slash WrestleCopia and that $5 all-access tier filled with gifts. We certainly appreciate your time here listening to the program each and every week. Going to be back again next week, dropping every Wednesday here. Another edition of the Wrestling Stoop with the legend himself, Bob Roop. Bob Roop.